You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It is long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. Lilani Squire first came to my attention when she submitted her plays uh, to Vet Rep for consideration in our playwriting competitions. Uh, so I knew her name. Um, I think I had read some of the plays she submitted, maybe not all of them. And then she submitted writing to us to for publication on the Savage Wonder literary blog, uh, which I published right away and got a really strong response on, um, which didn't surprise me because it was uh, great writing and very moving and affecting. And... Um, she ended up winning the 10-minute playwriting competition out of, I think, somewhere around 190 submissions. She was the winner for her play, 15 Dead Souls, which we will um, touch on during the episode. So you know what she's talking about when she mentions 15 Dead Souls. Uh, that's what we're referring to. Um, but based on the strength of some of the poetry that she submitted, some of the creative nonfiction she's, she submitted to the Savage Wonder blog, I had already invited her to come to the Savage Wonder Festival and perform, which she did, and she did brilliantly. And the pieces you'll hear her talk about, Midnight Watch, which was one of the pieces that she performed at the festival, which is just a a stunning piece of work um, and so moving and uh, and brilliantly crafted. Um, I want to talk, I want to give you guys a little bit of insight into her play that won. Uh, 15 Dead Souls, uh, this is what the judges had to say about the play. They called it poetic, touching, powerfully written, earnest, which is good, but also not sentimental. Readers found it haunting and affecting. Um, so that kind of gives you an idea of certainly how they received it. For my part, I um, what I loved about Lilani's writing is she does something that is very easy to fuck up she she writes in a i don't know if she would chafe at my description of it like this but i find her writing to be semi-surrealistic and she talks about it in the episode as writing um in the world where souls heal where souls go to heal and i that is going to be a somewhat ethereal somewhat surreal setting um and there are I can say after having <laughs> read a lot of plays, there are those that do try to write plays in that realm. Uh, maybe they wouldn't phrase it like that, but you know, to write a play like that is very difficult. You can quickly lose a reader. But this is where Lalani's, um, again, my words, not hers, but where I think her iron will and her discipline as a writer kicks in. The fact that she has, by her own count, barely missed a day writing since 1996 <clears throat> is exceptional. And that boy, that does that help your craft? And uh, and it shows, it shows in the depth of her characters. It shows in the depth of her, um, how she's able to weave a narrative and a structure loosely yet still make it compelling. Uh, so for all those reasons, as a performer, as a poet, as a playwright, she was somebody that I, I could not help but have my eye on. I had, 
I, I knew just from the data points of having read various pieces of hers, I knew there clearly was a lot going on with her. I knew she'd clearly lived a life. I had no idea about the depth and breadth of that life until we sat down to talk. This episode is one of those episodes that truly took me by surprise. It was such an honor to talk to Lelani. Her honesty, her transparency, her vulnerability in sitting down talking with me. I couldn't be more grateful. It made for a fascinating conversation. I, 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 you know, she compliments me repeatedly throughout there for my questions. And as I told her repeatedly on the episode, it's the questions are easy. Um, you know, her life just begs the questions. Um, you guys, I won't give you too many spoilers, but from her insights on the impact of having been a military child and how she's continued to try to unpack what that's meant to her, to her marriage, to a, a UDT frogman, to her <laughs> involvement in various nefarious activities, which I'll let you find out about during the course of the episode to, uh, her, you know, uh, God, hyper disciplined, adrenalized life as a well-trained classical dancer to then applying a lot of those lessons into her writing and applying that discipline to her writing. Um, yet writing such moving, affecting pieces, and then how she ended up getting back into the veteran community and launching a nonprofit that uh, heightens veterans' voices and works with veterans. It's it's an exceptionally interesting life, and she was, I just couldn't have been more grateful to be able to sit down and talk with her. It was such a privilege to do it, and I can't wait for the next time. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is The Savage Wonder of Lilani Squire. All right, this is the show. <laughs> this is it, Lilani. This is the magic moment. Excellent. What's up? How are you? I I'm love okay. your room. Oh, Primity. Is this an office space that you're in right now? Yes, it is. This is um, this is my corner. This is where I work. My, my beautiful uh, desk is, you know, I'm sitting in front of my desk, and this is the corner where I work, and also where I. Um, uh, this is my cave. This is where I've, yeah. I've pretty much been for the pandemic. Yep, wow. I know. I have all my my raggedy ends, my thread. My passports yeah. that I haven't used, my pencils, it's like my boxes of you got boxes there. You've got what what's the drawing behind you? Is that you? Is that a self-portrait? What is that? That is my mother. Um uh, oh. Disneyland opened. I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself, but that's that's okay. Like 1950 something, and we would go every year, and this is a chalk drawing. You know how the artists sit on yeah. the on the I had yeah. a chalk drawing of my mother, and I, I think it was the first year or soon when Disneyland wow. began. I know. Wow. It's very old. I know. It's, it's no, no, but that's awesome. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's up there. So that, yeah, are you somebody that needs, like, you need, do you need the creative clutter around you? 
I've been accused of that myself, that like, I need a little bit of clutter around me, like not, not somebody else's clutter. I need my clutter where everything makes sense to me. I know where everything is, but to the impartial third party, it might look like there's a little bit of a clutter, but that's just how I operate. I can't, I can't operate in a sterile environment. Is that true for you too? Yes. Clutter. Yes. It, uh, when you said that it's t- to me, it's chaos because out of mm. chaos comes the creation. However, having, yes, back here is, it looks like chaos, but I know like the boxes, the boxes are very organized. There's mm. um, returning soldiers speak stuff. There's a uh, veterans write their poetic myth. Um, there's a great book, uh, the creative habit by Twyla Tharp. And she, she talks about how she creates these boxes, the, the, what do, what do you call it? The, like the folding cardboard box. Yeah, I the, don't know bank, what... ba- the banker's box. Banker's box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she puts, when she works on a project, she puts everything in the box. So she can, so she has everything in one place. And I think it's, so when I read that, I went, oh, yeah. So I, that's what I've done. Um, there's that's another so one. great. You know who else did that? It was my dad. He wrote, he wrote for years and he never got published. And I ended up sleeping on top of those boxes. There were about, I don't know, 12 of them. And he just filled bankers boxes full of manuscripts yeah. and drafts and all that. And I had them under my bed. And after he died, um, I was, they were just under my bed. And my, my girlfriend at the time was now my wife. We, like came over and was like, you're sleeping on top of your dad's book. Like that's like a metaphor, isn't it? But anyway, yeah, yeah it's so weird, but yeah. So I have very strong sense memory attachment to bankers yeah, boxes. Yeah. yeah it, it's definitely a thing. Yeah, and, and it's helpful because then I when because you're you know after years I go what was that again and I can go to the box and dig through it and find it. But having said all of that, my um my desk is actually quite it's actually quite organized. It's like at night I, I write by pencil, so I will um I will. St- sharpen my pencils, put them on all in straight in order and line them up for the next day's writing. <laughs> it's like, so, so I, I, I do that kind wow. of stuff. Um, are you, are you, I was going to say anal, but that's not about a polite way to say it. Let me say, are you disciplined <laughs> about your, do you, are you ritualistic about your writing? Are there things you have to do in order to tee yourself up to be creative the next day? Um, the, the next day I will think about what I'm going to work on or what, what needs to be worked on. And if, it, you know, getting the pencils, that kind of thing organized, and perhaps if I'm uh, putting the pages in front of, in the middle of the, mm-hmm. of the desk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when, I, when I'm getting ready to write or to work, I close the curtains, I turn on some lights, I close the door, and as I'm doing that, I'm preparing myself. That 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 to me is the ritual, you know, because this yeah. is a sacred space. Yeah. Um. And and as I'm doing that, I'm preparing myself to go into that into that place, that imaginative, creative place. Yeah. And Do then you, I sit. Oh no, no, sorry. Uh, you sit, and then and then and you I can sit. commit. You can commence work at that point. Correct. To me, actually, yes, I commenced the actual writing of it. To me, shutting the curtain is the beginning of commencing the work. Do you bring bills into that office? Do you bring other non-related, do you bring busy work in there or do you like keep it sanitized? Like, nope, this has got to be creative stuff only. Otherwise, I'm going to get distracted with, oh, hey, there's that bill there or there's this letter here or something else. That's very interesting. Um, Occasionally, I will do that. 
but most of the time that is in a, another mm-hmm. another pile that's another place another pile yep. but there are times of when i if something is pressing i will i will do this or my taxes i have to do taxes then i organize it perhaps here a little bit and then that that then is done in, in another space so this yeah yeah um, this pretty much is my my sacred creative space and um surviving the pandemic this is where I've this is where I survived the pandemic because I live in Los Angeles, and it was during during the surges. Um, it was it was pretty bad here, so I had to go further, 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 deeper into inside the cave. Where are you in LA? North Hollywood. Okay. And Noho, I act to Noho Arts District. Sure, sure, absolutely. So there's a, that's a walking. You can walk that area. You could get out and like stretch your legs. Oh, absolutely. There's, occasionally, I, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely. Um, I walk. I mean, I just walk my dog. There's like there must be at least fifty dogs on the block. Sure. There's, there's sure. so many, so many dogs. Um, no, I mean that's hugely important. I think in LA, especially when things were locked down and it's hard to get out and about. Do you are you somebody that do you prefer to write in a cozy space or do you can you write in big wide open spaces? Like I know my dad used to, he used to need his study. It was an old maid's room in our apartment and that was his study. And it was literally like a, twice the size of a closet maybe. And he just had a big comfy chair. He had a wood board across his lap and that was it. He had to write in there. He, if you put him on the beach, he's not doing any writing like that. I, he wouldn't know what to do. Um, he couldn't write in an open field. He had to write in a cozy environment. I probably have some of that in me. Are you the same way? Do you, do you like, did it feel as uncomfortable as the pandemic was? Did it feel, was it an easy adjustment for you to write in that smaller space knowing, Hey, okay, my brain is just going to go out here on the walls. I'm just going to, this is going to be my creative hub in here. And I don't need my body to physically be going a lot of different places. I can operate in a confined space very well. Was that kind of true for you? Uh, yes, but also this is where I was writing anyway. This is what okay. this was my space anyway. Yeah. To, for, and, but during the pandemic, I I went deeper into the space. But I can if mm-hmm. um I I can write anywhere. But I actually prefer if I had if I had to make my choice, it's um a corner because I have um uh, I'm hyper vigilant. I need my back. <laughs> I got to have my back in the corner um, and the door shut and no music, nothing, nothing, no, no music, no, no, nothing. Mm-mm. No, I don't, I don't write with music. No, nothing. Where so. does, where does the, uh, let me start with the hypervigilance. Where does that mm. come from? That's something that I notice about myself. And I know the guys in the military and certain other fields feel that way. Where does that come from for you? How'd that happen? Um, let's see, um, probably, um, I, I, I had a, now we're getting into the, into the, the, no, notice my body is like moving around. It's like, you know, <laughs> oh, you know, you can ask me any question. It's like, whoa, you know, really do you, you have to ask me this one? Um, so I, I said I, I was going to be, I try not to keep any secrets inside, 
so I believe that the oh dear, do I really have to go here? Yes, you don't. You don't have to. You don't. Have, I mean, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. You know, to your comfort. No, it's okay. Um, so back in the '70s, uh, I had an IUD perforate my uterus, and I almost died. Um, I had two major surgeries within a month, maybe. Yeah, and that was um, we were women were guinea pigs for the. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies. This is this is my experience. This is my belief. Right. So they were not tested enough on the market, and I I'm actually one of the lucky ones. I I survived. So that that them almost dying in that kind of situation. We didn't we didn't know what was going on. Uh, so that created trauma, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Yeah. Um. At the same time. At the same time that that was happening, um, I was married, and he was actually um, we were we were involved in illegal activities. So all, be, even before the before before the IUD perforation, there was also I lived in, in a world of danger. There was a, I lived in a world of danger. Okay, you know I can't let that. Go. Can I ask what what were the illegal activities? I can guess, but I'm not going to guess. Um, is there, uh, smuggling? We were, we were smugglers. I can't believe I I said that. No, this is, I mean, this is crazy. This is (laughs) smuggling. What exactly? Can I ask? Uh, marijuana from Mexico into Imperial beach. We were smuggling. Okay. Uh, So, so since you, yeah, we were smugglers. Um, uh, and so we are, it was already a a world of danger, right? Well, wow. and so I mean, there were guns and all kinds of stuff, and sure. it was you know it was very exciting. There's no question about it. <laughs> um, it was very exciting. So here I lived in a world of danger already. Then I had the IUD perforation. I almost die, and my husband continued to the, the operation, which is um, a funny play on words because I. Uh, <laughs> continued the operation so i was recovering inside this world of of danger and and then of course them wow it's like i can't believe i'm talking about this um became the marriage became violent so um there was a lot of violence and i think that's i think it's in my body yeah yeah, yeah so sure. so you know the hype it's in my body so i'm hyper vigilant um you can't since you're asking you can't come you can't come walk up behind me yeah. you know you, yeah. you really can't walk up behind me it's like you have to warn me um yeah. it's i shut the door when i'm writing i'm i'm involved in i'm really you know i'm deep inside the writing i'm writing and and, and maybe it's like a um a precarious or dangerous scene or whatever and my husband my my new husband who's a wonderful person um will knock on the door scares the daylights out yeah right yeah and or he will walk in, and, and he doesn't. He, he doesn't understand why. Well, I'm the only one in the house. Well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> so I can't. These yeah. Daylights out of me, but but I I, I do want to. So since this is you know veterans and stuff like this, um, and you know I was what, born in an army hospital, raised in the military. Um, we actually bought the the business from a Navy SEAL. You bought your smuggling business. From, yes, the Navy, from, a, from a Navy SEAL. From a Navy SEAL. Wow. Yeah, from a wow. Navy SEAL. Yeah. 
Yeah. And w- w- was your husband, but your husband, that husband was military also, the one that you were doing the smuggling with, wasn't he? Correct. He was a underwater demolition team. Yeah. So he was actually one of the, cause that would be in the, let's see, we married in his early seventies. So he had, he had, he had, um, um, gotten out of the Navy just not long before we met. Okay. And so he was, I, I believe, I don't know when the underwater demolition team first began. It, right. it was the forerunner of the, of of the, the seals. seals. Correct. And then it went until I think the early 80s, I believe, is, yeah. or maybe it was a little later, yeah. that they phased out the UDTs. Yeah. 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 But he was, he was a badass. He was, he was, uh, he was a, a fish in the water. To, to, to him in the water yeah. was just, he was amazing. So that isn't um, how you smuggled, was it? Were you guys swimming the whole way across? <laughs> no. Wait. So how did that, so, but how did it happen? <laughs> was it a buddy of his that got him involved or was it, a purely business deal that you ended up getting the business. How did that, how did that evolve? I don't remember. Okay. I don't, I don't, I, I do remember he said, I don't want to, I don't want to work a nine to five. Okay. And I was young. I was young. Yeah. I, I don't, I, it, it came through his channels. I don't remember. Maybe, maybe, maybe he had been involved in some, you know, illegal, something like that. I, before, I don't remember. How did you feel when that, when that came up? I mean, were you down for a Bonnie and Clyde life or were you like, what did, what did you think was going to happen? How did you, what, what was your expectation? That's a really good question. I, I don't know if I had any expectation now we're now we're hitting on something now we're hitting on something i think i was raised in the generation i was raised in a culture where um the girls were put behind the boys the boys were placed in front like for example in high school um i was in theater but we didn't have theater in my school in chula vista in my school i went out into San Diego into the regional theaters to be in the theater because we didn't have theater again in my school. Okay. But, but boy did, was there fundraising for a universal gym, uh, a universal gym for the boys football and athletics. Sure. We didn't, we didn't have a baseball team for girls. Sure. That's how, sure. that's how, that's how bad it was. So, um, I don't, I don't think, I don't think, well, wait, let me ask, would you have played? Were, were, did you want to get into athletics or were oh, you I, drawn I, to the theater initially? Well, I'll, see, my mother put me in San Diego Junior Theater when I was about 10. Wow. But also before that, I, I was born in Hawaii. So I remember I, I was, I don't have conscious memory, but in, but I, my memory is of, uh, my mother and my oldest sister dancing the hula. So I was from the from the very from my very initial living. I was around the arts, and then my mother was really creative with ceramics. Um, I know this is a tangent, but it's important to to know about me as um, when I when I was about four or five, my mother and father bought a house in Chula Vista. And so that's the house I grew up in because um, they, I, th- I think they were tired of moving, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Like yeah, sure. Right. Sure. Moving. So, um, 
Because your dad was in the Navy for all those years. Yeah, my dad was in the Navy. He was in the Navy for 30 years. So he went in, he, he, he enlisted around 35, something like that. Yeah. Um, so my mother was very creative and some of my most vivid memories of, of my life and my childhood was sitting in the kitchen table when my other older sisters, cause I was the youngest were at school and watching my mother do ceramics, her focus, her attention, her, how, you know, um, dipping the, the, the sponge in the water and, and washing or the, the greenware and then carefully carving the, the, the seam and all of this. And I would play with clay and then I would make my own mm. little objects. So my mother, this has nothing to do, I don't think, with the question because I don't remember the question. But notice how I notice how I stirred drastically I away from <laughs> from that question. <laughs> you gotta watch me. You know, but, but, so, but my mother my mother actually I believe was the one who taught me and inspired and, and and ingrained in me my my create my creativity my creativity because I watched my mother and there were these these quiet moments of of creativity and the imagination so and then that's, the first way basis. that the first way that manifested itself though was in you going to theater at ten would you say I would say would be tap dancing at about four or five wow. I was, yeah, yeah, a tap dancer. Yeah, she made me my costumes. I, you know, I have the little kitty costume somewhere. Yeah, uh, tap dancing. I loved it. And then into San Diego Junior Theater about 10, 11, probably 10. And what was your fascination? Was it dance? Was it theater? Was it acting? Was it performance in general, just to be in front of people? What Mm. turned you on? That's a really good question. I love the theater. I I love the theater. Um, When I was younger, it was actually, I love, I love working hard. I love going into a studio Mm -hmm. and working. Um, The the repetition of a dance moves, the rehearsal. I love the whole process. Um, So in my earlier years, it was rehearsing, learning dance, learning uh, a dialogue, being in a play, being on the stage. I, I loved that. The, and just, I loved the whole, when I was in San Diego Junior Theater, I was fascinated with um, the, the crew who would be backstage mm. and hang the mm. lights and all of this, and I would watch them in awe. But I was the one in costume rehearsing and going on stage, right? But I always like watched them. And I love being in a room with a director, Mr. D. I, I loved I loved being in the room with him. I loved we would go to uh, class Saturday mornings, and he in this big wonderful room, and he would give us exercises, and we would go and we would just do these things. That, right, you would probably call it improv, but mm. to me, it's not. It was it's, it's, so going delving into the creative process that imagination is what I really like the most and I'm really good at it so I love being on the stage and then I became a dancer choreographer 
um, notice how we, we, yeah, I was a dancer choreographer for many years. I was a, I was a good dancer, but I was a great choreographer. And then I became ill, and I believe that it had. I became ill. It was. Um, I believe it was a resurface of the IED. What the issues of the IED perforation? It. I believe it resurfaced when. In, so, so you were a dancer after the surgery, or had you been dancing beforehand? Both. So you were and professionally dancing, professionally dancing and. Mm. Professional? No, I wouldn't say professional. I didn't. But ha- oh, you were you aspiring to be professional at that point? Was that a focus? No, it was not. Okay. My my focus was the dance. I didn't have to be professional because I I had money. <laughs> you know, I didn't. I didn't need. I didn't need. Sure. I had lots. I had lots of money, so I didn't need. Sure. I didn't need to be professional. No, my my focus was at that time. I was studying with um, Madame Nadezda Kaliskas in this little tiny studio in, in um, like Hillcrest area. She was the prima ballerina of the Lithuanian State Opera Company before the Russians invaded. Wow. She fled, wow. and she studied with um, she was with um, the Baganova. She studied the Kirov Baganova style. So I was studying with her. So my focus was. Developing my craft, becoming the best I could be, at the, the best I could be. I learned, um, I danced some classical variations, uh, wow. pretty, pretty much classical from pet to pas. So it was pure. I learned, I learned classical ballet and variations pure from that lineage. So I, that's, that was my focus. I, but, I didn't but, care I mean, about professionalism. That had to be, but I mean, you had to think that this was going to be a career right who gets that involved as kind of a hobby like i mean w- didn't you think oh this has to be going somewhere at some point i'm maybe i have my own company or maybe i'm doing something with it right i mean wasn't that a focus um at that time that we're talking about yeah uh no because it, it but it was never a hobby I don't okay. I never never consider a hobby. When we talk about professionalism, we usually think of it as making money by it, correct? Sure. Right? Sure, or 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 maybe not, but maybe like, you know, if it's your main focus in life that you're like, "Hey, this is what I do," and maybe I'm working a temp job, but I just haven't made it as a dancer yet, but it's still my professional focus, like I'm still trying to be a professional dancer. I I don't right? know the answer to your question. Okay. I would I would be in the studio every day. Okay. Um, sometimes, well, uh, except for Sunday, uh, week, weekdays, sometimes four to eight thirty. I helped her teach. I was in rehearsals, um, Saturday rehearsals. So it doesn't get more serious than that. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> no, that's no, a lot. It, that's a lot of work. It, yeah. No, it, yeah. It cannot, it cannot. Um, but you so, were smuggling at the same time. <laughs> so that's why, is, is that why, so is that why you're saying like, it wasn't like the money wasn't an issue, but it was just like, so you, so that's, I mean, that's a, wild dichotomy in life i mean so i mean what did that did you were you well let me ask you this what were the other dancers like were they all like trying to be professional and going through the same workouts and all that and trying to get what what was there who were you around who were the who else was doing this in in your dance world who were you partnered with I was, I was, we were pretty isol, uh, insulated. No, we were all, I mean, the, the ones in Madam's advanced class, we, we were at bar every day. 
So I don't, maybe some wanted to be, it, it wasn't, uh, oh, but that actually is, that's not true. Some, some were, some did go to professional. One young girl went to the Harlem dance company. One, okay. another one, one of Madam's dancer before I went there, she also became professional. So, but then again, if, if you're talking ballet professional, there is very few, very sure. few make it that way because it's one of the most difficult things a body can do ballet i it's the hardest ballet is very difficult very very difficult very strenuous so um, so then i guess i guess let me boil my question down to this what were you getting out of it out was of what? it out of dance was it was it focus was it a discipline what, what, why were you so i mean that's a lot of work to put in what was the end game for you what did you think you were doing I made me alive. It was my soul. Uh, okay. Um, you know, dance, dance was, was how I, how I made meaning. It was, you know, how I made meaning when I doing bar, you know, um, was the most exhilarating, wonderful thing I could do. Mm. Adagio out in the middle of the floor. And mm. mind you, madam, Madam was again uh, uh, classically trained, and so she would create these beautiful adagios, just the these beautiful little tiny dances. And I love the slow work. And so when mm -hmm. we when doing the adagio, um, beauty, grace, wonder, challenge, pushing myself to the absolute edge of what I could do. Okay, so that's. Let me just pick up on that. I don't want to read too much into what you just said, but at the same time, you're pushing extremes in two very different ways. You're not doing anything lightly. You're doing two very extreme activities. It's right because it's two different worlds, but you're pushing both to the extreme. You're not dipping your toe in the water in either of them. What was that like for you? I mean, was this, were you that kind of person that just had to push things to extremes? What was the, tension like between doing such different activities to, to that extent i mean what, how were you holding up what was pretty your crazy, mindset yeah. um oh, pretty crazy huh um yeah. what was my mindset wow you, and you wonder when you wonder why i'm vigilant, I'm vigilant. <laughs> that's true well, let me ask you this were you happy were you did you feel fulfilled were you like hey i've got a great work-life balance look at me <laughs> Oh my God. You know what? I don't know if I can answer these questions, but I do know. I do. Um, what was I? I hmm. Hmm. Wow. Um, I guess, I, I guess you could say I lived in a very heightened state, very heightened, um, focused, um, had very aware, um, very cautious, you know, who, 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 it, who, who, who can be trusted? No one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, no one, right? Yeah. But, but, but what's interesting is, and um, you can see why I don't talk about this, this time in my life very often. Um, and only <laughs> you, Chris, my goodness, <laughs> only you could prod me here. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I don't know if I can answer those questions except for how I just did, but I do, but my senses, um, is through story, through character, and writing about it that I can mm. answer the questions. Yep. 
yep. that, that I process. And only recently, um, for years, you, you, you would never have gotten me to even close to what I've sure. been talking about. Sure. You would actually would you wouldn't even have the opportunity to ask because I was you know like this right yeah um, so it's through story and uh, it's um, I'm actually driven I hesitate because it, it's going to be difficult but there's th- to me my life is clay. I mean, because it, as we were talking, look, look at look what I would do. I would go to ballet class in the day, and then I would, you know, go out and, um, you know, do that other thing <laughs> at yeah. night. Or I yeah. would, or I would plan, you know, in the day and the plan this here and whatever, and then go to dance. And then, um, so what do I do with that? The the question is for me: What do I do with that? What do I do with that part of my life? Uh, do I just hide it? Sure. Well, when I hide it, I don't. I don't do well because I I held the secret so very long. You know, even just recently, do I talk about the IUD perforations? Right. You know, because there's shame and grief and sorrow, and so I don't have children. There's there's such there's such grief. There's such sorrow. You know. Um, yeah. So, you know, the hiding. You know, I, I wonder what what's, I find interesting that I just asked myself a question. When did I, when did the need to tell the secrets mm. begin? When did mm-hmm. the, when did the need or the willingness or the courage? Because yeah. it takes courage to talk about this. And, and, sure. and having said that, um, in a way, um, w- I don't mean to compare or anything, but when the veterans, you know, when they go to war or something, yeah. how how long do they hold the secret? Yes. Yep. And when and when is the secret revealed? And where is the secret revealed to? Who do you reveal the secret to? You know, and I wonder. Yeah. So. No, listen. I think that's there's so many parallels. Um, because I do think that, for one thing, an adrenalized lifestyle mm. that you can't, in the moment, you can't unpack it. It's going to take years after to unpack it. And that doesn't, that's not, I think sometimes we, I think people talk about that like that's a bad thing, you know, that, oh, you had to unpack this thing. It's just like, no, well, I was, I was busy doing something that required a lot of focus. So I just didn't have time to be introspective then. And I think that sounds like what it was for you. There was a, that period of time where, there's not a lot of introspection because you're go, 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 and you have to be in the moment and you're pushing very hard. And in your case, in two separate directions. So there, so yeah, there's going to, that's going to require some unpacking after the fact, because there was no time for introspection during that time. And I think that if I'm reading that right, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but if that's at all right, I think there's definitely a parallel between that and veterans experiences, especially in combat or, or, certain job fields or what have you. I can absolutely see that. I can also see to your point about who do you share that with? It's something I've been careful of. Not careful. That, that's being too precious about it, but it's something that I've, I guess I've been sensitive about when people talk to me. And when I talk to other veterans, um, I feel like doing war stories is like asking, Hey, how was sex on your honeymoon? It's like, okay. Okay. I mean, 
you can describe it, but are you really the right person to share that with? Like, is there a level of trust? Like, that's not just something, you know, that you're just going to lead with and you're going to open up to and be like, yeah, you know, let me tell you all the nitty gritty details. And I think there's something like that, um, a very close parallel with what you're talking about. You're talking about very um, intimate experiences and to just open up with that. Yeah. Is, is courageous and, um, and is done with some diligence and some wisdom, you know, and some caution. Absolutely. And also, but, but also necessary for the healing process. Okay. Yeah, yeah. sure. You know, or, sure. or to, or, or to come to grips or to say, um, uh, I don't know if redemption is the right word. I don't know if forgiveness is the right word. Right. Yeah. But also the, the, what you, you said something very key um, now, and I, I now un- realize why we're talking about this. Um, do you, you heightened adrenalized, what was that term you used? Heightened adrenalized, adrenalized state? life or state. Yeah. State, state, yeah. state. Sure. And, and, and that's, that's true. There was, because when we're, when we're in such a, um, a place, it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, because one, one, one wrong decision, you can be dead. Mm-hmm. You can be incarcerated. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be kidnapped. Mm-hmm. So when you said, what was I thinking? I was, it was survival at the highest, yeah. Yeah. right? But also what's interesting about that, ah, it's in my body. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, ah. yeah of course, of course. <laughs> um, um, but when you said that, I went, oh, it's interesting. I, you know, I work with veterans. And when I was over at the West Los Angeles, at the domiciliary over at West Los Angeles, VA over West LA, I worked with you know um, people in the domiciliary where the the veterans go to live and and um, deal with um, with drug addiction, alcoholism, combat trauma, sexual military trauma, homelessness, those kind of things, and especially in the combat track, I worked with them for a while. They would. Actually, all of them. They, they well, I, I have, I have this, I have this, or I have this, or I have this, or I have this, and the labels, mm-hmm. the labels, mm-hmm. and and because I was kind of um, an objective observer, I witnessed. I was, I was actually a witness to this. I, I saw that by putting that by putting a label, the psychiatrist who were putting a label on these young kids, actually hindered their progress hindered their progress so i'm very careful to put labels very careful right but but it was interesting is when you said this heightened adrenalized state of mind i went oh my god yes and i don't know if that's a label but or or as i sure. identification well it, yeah and i think that's right i think that's a fine line between labeling something that you then have to work out of that label and that becomes a detriment versus just identifying something. So you could do forensics on your state of mind and on and analyze what was going on. I think there's a very fine line between that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you, you identified that phrase from that phrase, identified something that I could not identify, but I also believe because I was vulnerable because I'm vulnerable right now. I was able to go, oh, look at that. Hmm. Oh, wow, how interesting that is. Um, 
but again, going back to to story and characters, um, you know, I've been writing I've been writing about this for a while, um, but I I'm driven actually when you talk you know I'm driven to actually have the courage to one day really write it yeah. um, because I use other characters I use um, I wrote a play about a uh, actually it was one of, uh, kind of based on one of my students at the Dom she never ever said it but I believe she was there for military sexual trauma mm. I, I believe I believe so right and so I, I I wrote a monologue based on on the on my care and then it grew into a play um and then you know and then i i wrote i wrote a novel about um uh something else and i know that that they're they're good work they're interesting characters but i've used other characters yes yep you know but i I, and as i said that i i have the sense that those other characters and those other stories are leading me or helping me lead to my story, you know? Absolutely. It seems like there's that that's also the beauty of fiction is that I think if you were just to write the Lalani Squire story as a nonfiction piece, even if it's great creative nonfiction, um, it's, it's, it's kind of a one and done. It's kind of like you shoot your load and, and here it is, but finding the way to kind of get to the heart of the story and maybe a greater truth through coming in through the back door and looking at all these tertiary points or starting with a whole different story because you're talking about a different character and then working your way in, you actually are kind of unpacking your own story in a way. Well, I, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that uh, I don't know who said it, but somebody much smarter than me that said uh, all creative geniuses are only telling one story and they spend their whole lives trying to tell it. And it's just whatever the vehicle is, this is going to be stuff that's going to fall out of you and that's going to unpack throughout mm-hmm. all that. Right. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, um, it's funny. I, one of my, let's say I wrote a play, uh, um, about a young girl. She's 16 and I'll, um, and I might as well. So after I divorced and everything, then in the eighties, I was um, um, again very much in the dance, very much in the choreography. So I um, anyway, I was a, a topless dancer to support myself. <laughs> I I know I have a very of course, interest, of course, I, very, I love this. This is this is the best life. conversation I've ever had. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, and where I, was this? Where where'd you in do Los that? Angeles? Los Angeles. I work. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I know this is another little story because it's so funny. I'm, I'm like preparing for this interview. I go, okay. Cause I was nervous, you know, blah, blah. I go, just tell your story. Just tell your story. I had no idea I was going to be telling these stories. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I know. So, um, I'm, I'm in this, I'm in, I'm at Santa Monica college and I'm in rehearsal for a concert someone else's choreography. Um, I'm in rehearsal with, and I'm standing on the, you know, on the edge in the dance studio with Roberta, uh, my, my partner of the dance, you know, to come in, to enter, enter. We're, we're standing there. And I needed, I, had, I was getting kicked out of the place that I was living very, very cheaply. Mm-hmm. And I needed, I needed a job, right? Because I had been able to support myself up until then. 
And I, t- I said, so I said, uh, so I'm talking with her. And I go, well, so what do you do? I need a work. I need a job. I need. She's this little tiny, sweet, innocent-looking mm. woman, right? Yeah. She said, I'm a topless dancer. And I went, what? She said, yeah. I said, well, how much do you make? A hundred dollars a night on a good night. I went, whoa. And this was back in the eighties. Sure. Oh, that's good money. And I said, I asked her a couple. She said, well, I can, I can help you know, give you, help you get an audition if you want. <laughs> so. I did. Oh my God. So anyway, I supported myself in that world. Well, I, um, I just, I just have to ask only because I lived in LA <laughs> and because Motley Crue's only written, you know, 30 songs about it. But were you, were you on the strip? Were you, do you, are there any of the clubs still around that you danced at? No, okay. no, my first, no, um, no, I, she worked at the Kit Kat oh, yeah. on the Kit Kat, right? Well, then after the whole, what the whole, um, what John Holmes and everything that, that shut down. Cause that was, that was, um, involved in, uh, quite clandestine and murderous, whatever. Yeah. So that shut down. Then I went to a real dive uh, the last call. Oh my God. That was such a dive. <laughs> oh, it was just a dive. Where was it? Hollywood. Okay. And what, that West sh- Hollywood, East Hollywood. Or, oh, I think that I think that was closer to Hollywood. Okay, just smack yeah, in the middle, like La Brea-ish. Yeah, because yeah, okay. the Kit Kat was in, it was in Hollywood, but closer to West Hollywood. Yeah. And then after the the last call uh, shut down, somebody there had said you should go to the the Wild Goose. Yeah, you you'll like it there. You'll do good there. So I I went and auditioned at the Wild Goose, and I and I worked there for a while. Um, yeah, what a trip. Yeah, there was a real trip. So, so I'm sorry. Let me let me just ask this. I mean, I'm trying to think of the best way I can possibly ask this. <laughs> going going from what you had been doing with your ex husband at this point, and then in into the topless nightclub world, was this? Did you feel at the time? Now looking back with the benefit of hindsight, did you feel like this was the furthest thing from what you could have imagined as a little girl or growing up? Or were you like, no, no, yep, I, I always, there was a part of me that loved the dark side. There was a part of me that loved the edge, that loved, you know, dancing close to the flame. What was, did you feel like you were, which of those, I mean, if either, which of those did you feel like you were? No, neither. No, okay. it, it, I, I, I don't, I, I didn't think in those terms. How could I? Okay. If, I thought, if I thought in those terms, Chris, would I have done what I did? Those are those are mm. sitting in a comfortable place, looking at one's life. Sure. You know, again, w- when we're in it, no. Um, I believe this is my experience. I sure. believe. Okay, a couple of things. After the IUD perforation and the violence of of my marriage, right, and the betrayal. There was such betrayal on both sides. The wound. I, I was a. I was a wound. I was an open mm. wound, mm. I, right? And I was, you know, be, I was burying myself in sorrow and in grief because of the existential crisis that I, the meaning crisis that I, I, I lived, right? So, so why not go further down into the underworld? Why not, right? Having said that, what I learned in that world of, of topless dancing, what I learned was, yes, the money got me there, but what I learned was we, we were there to see the woman of us, to, 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 
it, it's a bizarre concept, but I remember being backstage and I re- realized we're here to we're here to discover who we are as women. Mm. We what who am I as a woman, right? Who am I as a woman? Um, but then also I um, I became I start uh, I started chanting in that I started chanting then I, I became I started practicing Buddhism and that was the turning point of my life and actually because of such because of my buddhist practice i i was able to uh, retire and escape <laughs> escape escape yeah. the underworld and co- sure. i stepped out into the light you know into the light so um i don't know if that answers your question no it, but it it does what what about buddhism made you step out into the light what what about it made you have mm. to leave that behind that's an interesting question um what what ask ask the question again? What about Buddhism made you step into the light, as you put it? I think okay, because I chant Nami Hodenge Kyo, and it just and that was um, it's it's such a powerful practice that that it it transforms our our mm. it transforms us from deep within, and I there was hope. I had hope that I could change, that I had actually, I had hope that I could actually make, um, change the course of my life instead of, because I had actually kind of been a victim. I'd been a victim. And then actually, you know, um, there was, I, I, I saw, and also the, it's based on the law of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So I also saw, oh, I'm, the law of cause and effect Yes, we think of, I do this, that happens, but it's actually even deeper than that. Somehow, I actually can, I th- I'm repeating myself, but in a different way, I actually can steer my life towards this way, consciously making choices, cons- and, and actually, um, I, I am worthy. I, I, am a go- I am worthy. I do have mm, what the Buddha nature within me. Right, you know when when I uh, when I was very ill before I had to stop dancing, um, I, this homeopathic doctor he would talk about we have two songs and I like this analogy we have two songs within us, the dark I'm just easy the dark mm-hmm. song and the light song right you know right mm-hmm. you know the, the right and so wh- which which song is stronger is it the dark song that's stronger, right or is it the mm-hmm. light song that's stronger, so when I saw that I had choice and I had control, what, what, what do you call that? Agency? Yeah. Yeah. I had, sure. agen- I had agency. I had agency. So you didn't feel you'd had agency really up until that point, whether it was through your marriage, whether it was with the smuggling, even in dance, you didn't feel you had any agency with any of it. I, I would say I didn't, I wasn't in, I don't know if I can, I don't know. I, 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 I I think we I think we we experience things because it's what we are to experience. It sounds kind of hmm. uh, um, I, I, I don't know, but I'll, okay. I will I'll answer it this way. I'll answer it differently. Looking back now, um, I, I, the I experienced what I experienced because it's my life. 
That's mm. what it is. You know, I experienced it because that's who I am. That's what I am to live. That's what I am. That's my life. And, and when I look at it that way, there's no shame. There's sure. um, honor. There's understanding. There's a deep compassion. Here, here we go. Now we're here. We're getting somewhere. There's deep. <laughs> there's deep compassion when I look at that young woman who, you know, who was dying or whatever, or who did those made those crazy choices. I have compassion for her instead of what the hell were you thinking? Sure. You bad sure. girl. Sure. No, there's there's compassion for her. Having said that, I wonder. I, and I don't know, uh, but I, I have wondered, d- d- being raised in the military, how did that inform me? How did that inform right. me as, right. as, as, as a child, as a young adult? You know, and just as I was thinking, as I was saying that, my father would go away for long periods of time, deployed on, on, on ships, right? And he would come back. And then my father, uh, one of my most vivid memories of him as a child is being at, in the middle of the night, he would be outside watering, watering the trees, or he would go run. And I, I thinking about that, I, I wonder if that was his way of being on ship because um, you know, being on watch, being out yeah. in the middle of the ocean, going outside and watering the trees. Sure. Um, so there's something there. I can't, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something there. And then my mother, my mother, um, a military wife. When he was gone, all of the responsibilities with her. Um, she had, th- you know, three, four daughters, quite, quite powerful children. So, and they come, and my mother and father, they come from with their own stuff. Is is anything that I'm saying making any sense? No, it's making a lot of sense. I mean, I have a ton more questions, but yeah, no, it's, it's making, absolutely (laughs) making sense. I mean, do you, well, let me start with this. Do you think there was a reason that you ended up marrying your first husband? And that reason has something to do with the military. The fact that your husband was in the military was a completely coincidental you as a Navy brat were marrying a Navy man? Probably not consciously, but probably unconsciously because okay. there was a common language. Yes. Sure. Even though, even though I didn't go to boot camp, I under, I, I, sure. I was raised in the military complex. So there was a, a common, a common thing, uh, uh, denomination, but I also, um, yeah. And, so it's so why we do something like that is very complex. Of course. Of course. Um, I actually want to ask you about agency again, only just because um, I'm interested. I mean, do you be, and I'm interested in how you had phrased it before that, you know, making the shift to Buddhism, emerging into the light, as you said, it. you know, you felt this sense of agency that you hadn't felt before. Not to say you maybe didn't have any agency before, but just it was a greater sense of agency that you now felt. And I'm just kind of curious, I mean, how much, if I'm getting that right, or if if there was a sense of um, that you hadn't had control in your life 
up till that point that that things were kind of thrust upon you whether because hey i got to make money or hey my husband's doing this smuggling thing so of course i'm going to have to do it also or dance uh you know i danced from when i was a young girl so it's my discipline it's what i do it's where my love naturally expresses itself i was there agency was were these conscious choices or were these things that you felt were kind of thrust upon you um perhaps both a combination of okay. both sure so you know uh deciding deciding to go to the dance studio every day that that's my my choice you know i did that um wanting to wanting to uh do a, a piece uh, create a piece of choreography that's my choice um so again i think uh, there's a combination i don't i don't mm. think it's a black and white mm. you know um, being consciously, yeah, let's let's do this. Let's let's buy this business from from a this this Navy SEAL um, who uh, is tired and wants to to get out to get out, um, you know. And uh, let's do this. No, I was very I was very involved and in, and in, uh, with that again, it goes back to the clay of my life. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's my life. It's my clay, and but also when I when I first began the Buddhist practice, I, 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 it was much more subtle. It was, it was mm. much more subtle, um, than, Oh yeah, you know, I can do it now. No, it was much more subtle. I it's, see. I've been, let's see, I've been practicing for 35 years and it's still, it's still, sure. you know, this building, this building process. Um, but, but I, I do want to say I, I, um, Going back to what you have, a, you had another question. No, 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 no go, no, go for no, it. No, another I, prov- I always, ha- I always have more questions, but, but no, <laughs> no, no, take it away. But, but, but something that when we were talking about um, my writing, other characters and other stories mm. wrapped you know, that are wrapped in my own story. When we were talking about that, I thought of Doris and James, and um, of Fifteen Dead Souls, and how. That actually, in a, in a, is my story too. It's you know how Doris. Doris is the one in that realm. I I believe. I believe in that realm. I believe in the realm of of the the wound of our souls. I mm-hmm. I I believe that realm exists as much as this realm here, mm-hmm. right? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, because. And again, when we put labels on it, my, my trauma is, is, um, my, my wound, you can't see it, sure. but it, but it's there. Right. Sure. So when we were talking, I, I saw myself as James walking into that realm mm. with, with the visible wounds and the invisible wounds and Doris holding me, embracing me, you know, um, singing to me and and then dancing with me and guiding me to the river where um there's forgiveness i think i think there's forgiveness of of self sure and you know forgiveness of others did that make sense it absolutely makes sense and it actually makes me wonder why did you find yourself constantly coming back to veteran narratives so you know a lot of the poetry that we've featured of yours a lot of stuff i've read of yours there's 
this is one sliver of your writing. I'm not trying to sum it all up with this, but of these pieces, um, there there seems to be an almost nostalgic sense of a veteran, and then contextualizing it with how what the emotional play is, whatever the emotional dynamic is in the piece. And I'm just wondering where did that come from? Where did, why do you why is that always a touchstone, or it seems like for you? That's a really good question. You write you you ask very good questions. Um, I just want to say that. <laughs> well, I've got so, easy subject matter to ask questions. <laughs> of. That's okay. It's easy. <laughs> um, I, I I okay. So there's again there's a long answer here. Um, back when the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans were coming home wounded, mm-hmm. right? I. I, I read and I saw and I watched and I I was a, a I was writing a lot of poetry at that time so I wrote I wrote about what I was seeing in order mm. and hearing in order to process I had to process what I was seeing and what I was hearing and at that time when you know back in the early 2000s their voices weren't being heard they, we didn't hear their voices it was too soon. Sure. Now we're hearing their voices. Anyway, that's another, that's another subject. Um, but I had to process and I think it also, it, it comes from a a few different places. One, I grew up, uh, and when Vietnam, when Vietnam happened, Mm -hmm. I was, I was born in an army hospital during the Korean war. My father served in the military. Um, so, Again, I had to write what I saw and what I was hearing. And let me just say, when you say what you saw and what you were hearing, do you mean personally or like just on the news or where were news. you? What was your, okay, news. News, gotcha. on the news, because I was here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Was pretty, sure. I was pretty, no, actually then I was, um, there were different places. No, I was living on a boat in the marina and then I, my husband worked on Lost the first two years, so I was in Hawaii and then I was here. So, uh, so a lot of the poet, the um, love poem to a private was written right here. Was written oh, right here. Okay. Wow. Um, the voyeur, the one about you know, um, a voyeur section section sixty was written right yeah. here. Um, a midnight watch was written right here. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, so then, okay. So then, um, and again, I forgot your question, but I know the storyline. Um, then it was here that I said. I don't. I I can't let what is what happened to the my the, my my generation with the Vietnam veterans. I can't let that with this new generation. I can't let that happen to them. And through my own writing again, because I I had written about my um, the IUD perforation. I had written about the sorrow of of a mother. All this other stuff. Through my own writing, I understood the power of writing to process and to heal. And to at least at least you know to process in order to heal the wounds. Yes. So yeah. that's when I I said I I want to I want to start a writing workshop, and somehow through a lot of dead ends I ended up over at the VA. Um, so what was your question again? No, no, that was it. I mean, because I, I was first, I just want to know where the, you were getting the stories from, but then when you felt that you kept coming back to it, it seems like it was just watching it on the news started to make you take actions. 
Correct. But, right. but yes, but, but two things. One has to do with my father. The other has to do with um, what it means to be raised in the military. What, what, what does a mm. child of the military mean? What does that mean? Um, and then also somehow, okay, let me go, let me go back. So when I, the first, the first time I went to go to the, over to the domiciliary to teach the first creative writing workshop mm. was in the, it was in the old buildings that, that, that were built in the forties, the thirties. Right. So I was walking down the stairway that down the stairway and I, and I, I went the smell, the sound mm. of my feet on the linoleum steps. I go, I know this. I know this mm. place. I, I know this. Yeah. I was like coming home. And I thought, <laughs> I'm doing this for my father. And I thought, I have chills. I thought, this, I'm, I'm doing this in honor of my father. That was the initial, right? So first it was helping, helping, the veter- helping these wounded people, you know, this, yeah. this, this new generation not experience what the previous generations had done. Then I realized, oh, this is in honor of my father. But as I've continued to work with the veterans... It's to, it's to, um, oh my goodness, I've never said this before. Oh, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. Honor myself as a child of the military. I've, I've never said that before. Because as I sit around and work with the veterans, I, I feel I, I'm uncomfortable. I mean, of course, mm. some of, some they, they trigger me, and I go off, and all. It's not easy sure. work, but sure. But I, I've come to I, I I I understand from my point, and so I realized as I was continuing to work. Oh, wait a minute! This is about me. This is about understanding my relationship to the military. This is about me understanding what it means to be a born in an army hospital during war what that means, my father off on an aircraft carrier, you know, mm-hmm. and, and being raised in this environment, in this culture that, that permeates everywhere, but so many who's not in that culture don't understand. I've never, I've never said it ever that to honor the child of me if in the military. Wow, Chris, that's deep. Wow. I'm wondering, uh, this is completely speculative, so you can completely refute this. I'm wondering, is there a sense of, by honoring the child, the military child that you were, that it circumvents the messy years in between or makes sense of it or goes, hey, you know something? All of us want to go back to that child that we were and go, oh, hey, there's look at the mistakes I've made, look at the problems I've had, look at the adventures I've been on. Maybe that wouldn't change at all. But suddenly everything makes sense because we go back and we start to understand the child that we were and that there is that sense of unpacking us at our origins to understand and unthread and unspool everything we've done since. Is that at all relevant? Do you feel that at all? Or am I kind of projecting my own bullshit on this? No, two things. One is I'm I'm so um, I'm in such new territory right now mm. that what you're seeing and what you're saying I can't comprehend it. Mm. But I, but I sense that you see something 
that's real or true, but I, I am not able to comprehend it, but I might be able to if in a week we were to, you were to ask me that, I'd go, oh, yeah, right, right. So yeah, yeah. you understand, you understand yeah. that, right? Uh, that's a very honest way to say that, yeah. Yeah, but, but I, sense, I sense as you're talking, oh, he, he understands something. <laughs> I can't understand it right now, but, but he's seeing something. He's understanding something. Let's come back to that later. <laughs> um, but, but you said the, chi- the child that was. I believe the child that is mm. is the child that is. Key distinction, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very much so. Talk about that. And I, I, it's hard, I know, to juxtapose your life versus somebody else's because you've only lived your life. But what does it mean to be a military child? You started to talk about that. And I just want to get to the bottom of that more. What, what mm-hmm. does that mean? Is it a value system? Is it, is it an experiential wisdom? What does it mean to to have been a military child, at least in your experience? I can very um, <clears throat> another good question. I'm just now understanding it in the in mm. this in this new way, right? Um, I keep I keep remembering. There's something here. I I keep I keep seeing. My mother, okay, let's see, um, five, six, seven, eight, nine, that, 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 those years, the child. Mm. I, 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 I see my mother and, and these other women and how they would talk and share is like if, um, if, if I had the measles or something and how these other women mm. would come and, and they, would, they, uh. would, they would go through the process together, the illness together. Um, there was... Um, uh, in my when I when I was a teenager, there was another woman lived you know on the block right. And mind you, I lived in I grew up in Chula Vista, so there was a lot of military. But I I didn't understand it in the way that I do now. I just so um, there was another woman. She would come over every Sunday, and she would bring uh, eclairs that she made or pigs in a blanket that she made, and we would have dinner together. And I believe. Her husband was in Vietnam, so so uh, so these women I see now as mil- other military wives. So there was this network of of, yeah. of the military family outside the box, but we were so in the box. Um, and then also um, again, my father being deployed, the difference of when he left. I told you. I told you the story. How uh, I, f- I found a letter. The letters that my mother mailed that, uh, mailed my father when he was deployed, and there was one where she was telling him how, after we said goodbye to him, I was on the in the back in the back of the car on the floor crying. Um, they took my, my daddy away. They took my daddy away. So we, you know, San Diego Harbor drove all the way to Chula Vista and there were, there were not freeways at that time. So on the, from the Harbor, I cried. They took my daddy away. They took my daddy away. I believed when I read that, I went, Oh my goodness. I believed as a child that that those people, those, those people in the, in the uniforms with authority on that ship, they took my father away and I would never see him again. Mm. That's a wound. That's, that's deep for a child, you know, cause I love my father. I loved him, right? He, I loved him. So a child to think 
that these that these men in uniform took their daddy away. Um, yeah. You know that that's part of the military. That's what it for me. One thing that that the children experience. You know, I was lucky. My father came home. My daddy came home. Um, so so um, it, then then another another vivid memory I have is being a child in the military. Um, we would go to Coronado Air Station at Christmas time, and all these kids, all these military children. But I did not. I didn't. You know, did I say, "Oh, military children"? Right, go, right, right, right. Um, no, we just went. It was Christmas time, and we would go into this big theater and whatever, and mm. and Santa Claus would be there, and we would get a <laughs> present. Wow, you know, wow, right, right. Well, you know, oh, of course, later on, well, your mother, you know, Mama wrapped that probably, stuck it around. So, so, but then, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but then again, so. Having said that, I calculated from the time I was born until we moved into that house, we probably moved like 13 times, living in a Quonset hut. One, one time wow. we, we were being transferred from like Oakland to Chula Vista or somewhere, right? But we didn't, our housing wasn't ready. So we went and camped at um, um, uh, Yosemite for two weeks. <laughs> it was like, right? Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah. After coming home from uh, from Hawaii, transferred over, did that answer your question? It absolutely answers it. Yeah, because I mean, I think I think it's one of those things where hearing the experiences and the emotional impact of significant emotional events at an early age that 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 I think fleshes out the picture of what that means and and differentiates what a civilian childhood I think is like for many people. I'm sorry. Can can you say that again, please? I think I think. The significant emotional events that you have as a military child, and especially in your case, um, you know, your father's at war, at deployed, going away, coming back. I think that differentiates you from civilian children that don't, you know, that have different problem sets, perhaps, mm-hmm. or not that at all, um, just something completely uh, separate. And I think that's, um, and I, I, again, I'm, wondering out loud i i wonder if i was thinking of this this is kind of a theory that i'm toying with based off what you said and thinking about other military children that i've talked to if being a military child either makes you deeply it makes you deeply fearful and i'm using that in the biblical sense a respectful of authority but mm-hmm. for one way or another that it either makes you anti-authoritarian or anti anti-authority maybe not anti-authoritarian but uh that there's a, there's a natural rebellion that that you can gravitate towards or a complete um appreciation understand appreciation is not the right word um a complete um reverence of in a way that and 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 I don't, and I was thinking about it, I was like, I don't know, and, and I'm not, this is very anecdotal, this is hardly empirical, but I'm, I don't know many military children that are lukewarm. They pivot hard one way or another, and they might do both. They might pivot hard one way and then pivot hard another way, but, but they're rarely, again, it's very anecdotal, but I'm, so I'm just wondering, 
Um, and I'm kind of laying that in your lap. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Am I crazy? Is there something to that? No, it's very interesting. As you're talking, I go, this goes back to this question you asked earlier. I can't remember. Said, you go, did you, there's a question that's very interesting. Um, I, I think, I don't think it's lukewarm. I think both. It's like, as you were talking, go, oh, wow, yes, because I do have that rebellion. Like, look what I've done. But then again, at the same time, when I'm in, like, at the, you know, um, I'm very uh, committed. There's a part of me that's really disciplined. Like, mm. the writing, I, it, uh, I'm committed. I show up. I do the work. You know, I do, mm-hmm. I do the work. Um, if, if you take, uh, the scissors out of the drawer, put them back, <laughs> it's like, right, yeah. right? you know, yeah. put them back. Um, I, I, you know, I do have chaos. Look, look behind me. There's chaos there. And yet, um, my pencils right now are lined up. Yeah. Wow. No wonder I'm confused, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Right. So yes. But, but also the other thing you were saying about uh, a child of the military. I often, I've been really thinking also, um, I'm, um, I'm a sensitive person. I have deep feelings. This is who I am. I have deep feelings. I'm empathetic among other things, but those three qualities. So I was born at Tripler army hospital during the Korean war. I've wondered what was it like for an empathetic, deeply feeling, sensitive, baby to be born on the seventh floor of a hospital where the wounded were coming back from Korea. What was it like? What did I hear? What did I sense? What did I know? Because, you know, we, yeah, we're baby. We come in, but we have, we come in who we are. Mm -hmm. I believe this. And, and it, what it hasn't been until just the past few years that I've wondered how that, shaped me and you know but but it's again it's not destiny but you know karma i I don't know right yeah how how did that shape me you know when when um when we were in hawaii uh and and my husband worked on lost um i would go to the which was a spiritual spiritual journey for me um to be back on the island of my birth Mm. pele pele kicks me off she won't she won't let me stay she won't she will not let me stay on oahu i went to um punch bowl the, the national cemetery and one day um i i went to the section of the korean the korean uh, graves and it was extraordinary you know um seven unknown buried here you know six unknown buried here three unknown buried there and i wrote i wrote a poem and i listed I walked around and I list. I have chills. I listed the n- numbers, the the the, um, the number of 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 the grave sites, and and there's something there. I I, I can't articulate it yet, but there's mm. something there, Chris, to have been born at Tripler during that time and to stand mm. on this hollowed ground. This hollowed ground. And knowing my father was on an aircraft carrier off the coast of Okinawa, because he was, you know, I found the telegram um, uh, telling him of my birth. I found it wow. know, after he, after he wow. died, right? So there, there's hollowed, I have chills, this hollowed ground. And it's so deeply profound. 
I can only sense it. You, that makes sense. Yeah, I can. I, I can yeah. only sense the connection, but but it, there's something there, here, about what we're talking about the child of the military. Because there, I, yeah. here I am, a, an adult, standing on this hollow ground, and again, I, I, I might cry. I felt it. Yeah. I felt the connection of these unknown soldiers, these unknown. To to my my birth, yeah, yeah. There's a story there, I think, and that's my story. Yeah. When did you start writing? When did you actually first pick up the pen and go, "Hey, I've I, I need to spill something onto this page." Hmm. I wrote poetry and stuff like that when I was a teenager. I even sent some off, and I got you know some nice responses. But then I I immersed myself in in dance. Um, so it was in 19, I think 1996. Wow. Remember I, I, I emerged, um, remember I, I, I mentioned how I became ill. Um, there was a connect, I, I'm emergence, re of, of the IUD perforation. So I was very, very ill. Uh, remember I mentioned the homeopathic doctor. I sure. mentioned that, right? So he said to me, um, I want you to write. I want you to write your what you're feeling. So, I was uh, I was lit. I, my father had died. I inherited the house because I took care of him when he died. I was in in the room. I was uh, on the futon, and very. I was in the black. I call it the black hole. I was in the black yeah. hole. Yeah. And I remember one day I had put a pen and a, a journal by the on the floor. I remember one day. I don't know what I was feeling. I don't remember that. But I remember the action of rolling over, literally rolling over and, be, and writing. And that's what I consider the beginning of my writing because I've written almost every day since. Really? Are mm -hmm. you disciplined about that? Do you make a point of writing no matter what? Yes, because I'm driven. <laughs> yes, I'm driven. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, there, what somebody said, um, I don't know who again. Um, uh, you can get, you can, you can uh, not write for a day or two, but three, no more than three. Yeah. You know, so pretty much I, I, I would say pretty much, hmm, is it true? Close to, close to, close to, close to. Are you always inspired when you sit down to write or, or do you do it? Um, are there times that you just suck it up and are like, I, I got to take my medicine. I've got to write. It has to happen. I don't know. It's waiting for inspiration. We'll never, I'll, I'll yeah. never sit down. No, yeah, you, you sit course. down, you sit down and, and yeah, you, you sit down um, and you begin. Um, I'm a, that's, that's my, I, I'm yeah. a big believer. You sit, you put your ass in the chair and you, and that's what you do. Yeah. Uh, um, you, no inspiration. The inspiration comes then, but I don't think, I don't know if it's inspiration, you know? Um, and if I'm writing and I, I, you know, I'm writing a character or dialogue and I can't think there, there's nothing coming. I go, blah, blah, blah. Literally I write blah, blah, blah until the dialogue comes. Literally I write it and then it'll come. Yeah. So what's the flash to bang for you to actually start writing? Do you, 
have an idea in mind or do you literally just start moving the pencil and go, Hey, whatever's going to come is going to come and I'll figure this out on the fly. What is flash the bang? What does that mean? Inception to execution. So from the inception to the execution uh, for just a daily writing session. um, If you don't, don't already have something that you're hot in the middle of, do you come in and do you go, look, yes, my ass has to hit the seat, but also my pen has to hit the paper. And am I going to, am I going to sit in the chair and think really hard for an idea in order to start writing? Or do you just pick up the pencil and go put the pencil here. And if I'm just writing blah, blah, blah for five minutes until something comes, so be it. Or is it something in between? Uh, I think it's all of it. Um, okay. All right. I think it's all like for, let's say, um, um, I, and I, it also depends upon where I'm at in the process. Okay. And also, um, hmm. So, um, I, I, I see images a lot. Um, it's, it's, it, it, that's a very complicated question for me. So again, it has to do with where I'm at in the process. Um, what is, what I, oftentimes I'll think, what does the work need? And I'll think of it before what, mm. what, what, and again, you know, putting my pencils, putting my pencils and, you know, for the next day, what does the work need? That that's a really good, if I'm, Mm. That if I don't exactly know, that's a good question. What does the work need? Not what do I need, but what uh, is the what is the work need? And that then sets me into you know, thinking of is what what again what what does the work need? Is it um the, does the character need more development? You know does um do, does that scene or or do I need to just work on the structure or do I just need to explore and discover? But but I will say that when I begin writing, and I actually through the process, I do a lot of exploration and discovery. And I learned that with um, when I worked with Alma Hawkins in choreography back in the, in the 80s. So I, I do a lot of exploration. I just, I'm the kind of writer who will just write. I write a lot in order to find. And then, um, but, but, and I don't know if this is, part of the answer to your question, but, but, um, I'll be sitting here and I'll be writing and a character appears, a character shows mm-hmm. up, f- not always, but fully formed, named and everything. And I go, Whoa, look at Mrs. D. Wow. Look at, Whoa, roots run deep. Wow. We're, whoa, look at you. So, Wow. So then when that happens, um, I, I just step out of the way. You know, it's like, whoa, Mrs. D, whoa, you know, okay, what do you have to say? And uh, so then, and then that, that's, that's the exciting times. When I mentioned them, um, and I don't know if this has anything to do with your question, but it has to do with my process. Um, remember I mentioned I, I wrote, I think I mentioned I, I wrote a play about military sexual trauma based kind of began with one of my students, right? But it completely right. took off, right? right? You would you would never know that. But anyway, mm-hmm. so I'm sitting here working on this, right? Because I, I, I was, there's something there, you think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you think, uh, for one thing, again, uh, the civilians don't know about this. 
right? You know, really? And also about women and men. One of my students at the VA was raped by his, he was on ship and he was raped by, he was roofied and raped by his roommate. Sure. And it's like, you know, so this happened. So I'm sitting here working on this play and all of a sudden a unit of women come marching into my room. I call them the squad. They come marching into my room and they exist in that realm of where the wounds of the soul exist. And I go, whoa, wow, look at, wow, wow. And they took over. I have... I have on my door here, I have photographs of World War II nurses. And this is, Doris came from, this, this is where mm. also where Doris came from. Mm. Um, I have World War II nurses, and I have Vietnam, and I have Afghanistan and Iraq nurses. And I mm. have a, a photograph of um, nurses um, all dressed in white. I'm going to show, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah. Nurses yeah. D- dressed in white in Tripler Hospital around the time I was born. So that's my squad. Um, I don't know. Does that answer your question at all? That, do, that does answer it. Um, it actually, I mean, there, there's so many ways I can go with this. Um, I guess let me start with this. When you are writing, um, I, I love what you said about getting out of the way of your characters. I think that's, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that you said that. Um, I, I think that's, that uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to say is that channeling, if you will, of the characters is is it, it's a must-have. That you're not going to write good, believable characters or good, believable dialogue without it. Um, and so I get that. I guess I wonder, um, in your daily routine. <sighs> Sorry, there's so many things. Uh, I, I guess the let me let me start with this. What is it that? Um, how, well, let me ask this: How many projects are you working on at one given time? Um, well, too many. But somebody, but um, a dramaturg, a well-known dramaturg, said, "Well, actually, it's good to have a few projects." Um, right now, I'm working on what's in front of me is a, a new play about generational how how generations we are how we are informed and handed down through generations but it's turned into something um a little bit more about what we're experiencing in our society so um that that that's on my that's on my desk right right here Mm -hmm. but then again um there's a play that i i wrote about the 16 year old girl um Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I need, I'm, I'm working also that I have, I wrote these monologues and I don't know if this is answering your question. It's going into detail cause I mm. can't answer it other. Than, so there are these monologues that I need to work to see where, how, how the character, how the, these monologues erupt out of the character. Because when I wrote this play, let me see. Okay. And, and I'm going into too much detail. I have the one play, the new play that's really in front of me, but Tammy, I am uh, also working on, Okay. It, I'm also working on. Then, uh, let me see what else do I have. Oh, Catherine's play the, the, with the squad. I need to go back. She's also in the back burner. 
So I have plays that are in front of me, and then yep. I have plays that are on the back burner. But okay. Ka- but Catherine's yeah. play about the sexual, uh, the military sexual trauma, her character was too passive. I have to go back mm-hmm. and, and rework, make her active. Mm-hmm. But, I, but in order to go into with that i have to like really delve into foot soldier that i submitted mm-hmm. for the full length mm-hmm. um the second act i have i'm i need to rewrite the second act because it was too pedestrian the first act to me is working really well the second act well they come in they sit around no i i need i need i need to rework the second act so i started working on that but then I had a deadline <laughs> for for this reading. See, that's what happens. You have deadlines. Yeah. Yep. You have readings. Yep. So, oh, shoot. You know, I worked on Foot Soldier. I was getting a little stuck or, you know, whatever. Then I had to, I had a reading for Tammy. I had to finish that pay, that play. And the the monologues emerged. And, whoa, where did these come from? And then, um, so I would say right now four. Okay. One in front, three on the back burner, but then I have a monologue okay. that is my story that is really on the back burner. So, so here's here's where I'm. This is I'm I'm gonna project something, and you tell me if this at all applies to you. For me, I'm a big believer that you can only have, you can only dream one thing a night, and like, what is it you're choosing to dream? And what is that project that your brain is working on, your subconscious is going to work on at night? So let me ask you two things about that. Do you try to tee up a dream? And I know I try to. Sometimes I will try to, as I'm going to bed, go, hey, you know what I want to problem solve tonight? I want to problem solve this. And I'm just going to sit. And as I go to sleep, I'm going to think about it in the hopes that I'm going to tee up that dream. Um. Do you do that or do you do, or, 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 or how much did the dream, does a dream influence you? How much are you content to let your subconscious kind of work for you while you're sleeping so that when you wake up in the morning, you've got a bit of a running start and you're going, oh yeah, I, yep, I've got some ideas and maybe they'll all fall flat, but I, some, the motor's on. I'm, I'm already revved because of what I just happened during the night. Does that kind of make sense? Absolutely, and I'm so glad that you that I'm that I'm not the only one who does that. Absolutely, uh, okay. absolutely, right. I and mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But I actually, I actually believe that even if my conscious mind isn't conscious, it's working. Yeah, because it's working. So yes, and that's a really good way of saying you can only dream one thing. That's true. That's what you said, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. tee up. One thing, mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. true. How, how? Yes, absolutely. However, like Catherine's play, it hasn't been in front of me right for a couple of years because it, 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 because uh, I needed oh, that. Actually, oh wait a minute, that's really interesting. It's on the back burner. Yeah. So it, when when our projects, I learned this with Alma Hawkins. When pro, things are on the back burner, they're simmering. They're still working, but they're working in a different way as what's in front of me. But I do think at times I'll be walking my dog or something and Catherine will show up. She'll show up. Or I have the squad. Every day I look at the squad. I look at them. I look at these these nurses, mm. these women, right? Yeah. Every day. They're here. But I I they're they're hovering. That's yeah. that's a good they yeah. hover. They they hover. So I guess I don't know, but <laughs> 
Would you ever change those pictures? Would there be a point where you go, okay, hey, I've gotten those plays done. Now I need to put up some different pictures because I want to have different subjects up? Or is it something that's, oh, you think you're going to be mining that in one way, shape, or form for the foreseeable future? Probably for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, to, yeah. To, it, you, there's no way. There's no way that I could take those photographs down yeah. right now. Yeah. Also, also, I'm, I'm looking at one of them. Um, this is again where Doris came from. Mm-hmm. You know, Do- mm-hmm. Doris. There's something. That's a. That's a. Um, again, another really good question. The uh, the thought. No, the squad is a part of me. I honor. Yeah. I honor these women. How many stories? How many stories do we hear about a nurse in World War II who lived in a, in, a, in, a, in a tent and washed her socks in a bucket of water? You know, how many stories do we have of that? We don't, do we? Not many. How many, how many stories do we have of, of an of a 18, 19-year-old girl who I'm going to go to Vietnam and be, be a nurse? How many? Sure. Do we have sure. those stories? I, I can't, that one I can't think of. Sure. Sure. So is it, does this go back to, um, and also this goes back to the question of, um, about being a child of the military that I, that I, I'd like to say, I marched in the great peace march of, um, 1970. I went, I drove, I was at UCLA. I drove from LA all night to San Francisco and marched in the peace, uh, you know, against the war in Vietnam. Right. I'm proud of that, that I did that. However, so there's a, there's a, um, because I, I I don't like I I didn't I didn't like the idea of what was happening. There's um conflict. There's conflict within me, and I mm. and it that here the military machine sends young men and women to war, and I don't want to get into the ethical whatever. And sometimes right. it's just for power. It's for you know stupid reasons right? Sometimes it's for stupid reasons. Now, other times it's necessary, but the stupid reasons, I, I, they're stupid. And yet at the same time, I'm proud. I'm proud mm. of my, I'm proud to be, I'm proud of my father. I'm proud of being, being raised. I'm proud of being a child of the military. There's a pride there. You know, it's like, um, occasionally very one, once or twice I've heard, jets going by you know jets yeah. and i go and i go i look i run i yeah. run to see them is it the blue angels what yeah. you know the whole or or there's a um yeah. or a military helicopter you know when i was married the first time we lived in imperial beach so Reem field was right there i mean helicopters all the time right so i can tell i can tell the difference between um uh, a police helicopter and a military mm-hmm. you know i, I can mm-hmm. So, so the the pride, wow, the, you know, because my father yeah. would take me to the air shows, the Blue Angels. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Right, yeah. right, yeah, yeah, right, right. So, so I just wanted to say that. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that, I think that's a really, yeah, that strikes me again, anecdotally, not empirically, as a very relatable trait of a military child. That it's it doesn't make you a shill for the military by any stretch, but there's an understanding of kind of just the behemoth that is the Department of Defense in some way, and there's that there's an understanding, an awe, not necessarily a trust, 
um, it's 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 being it's having grown up with this huge elephant around you all the time that you know and that is familiar, and that there's it's a good touchstone, but it's not um, it doesn't necessarily make it family, but there's that intimate knowledge of it. Does that kind of sum it up? Do you think? So in any maybe way? I I would add respect. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, respect yeah. and, and pride. I, mm. I, I think I use that word pride. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, talking the, the pride that I felt seeing my father dressed in his, mm. his uniform, the, the shoes, the whole thing, his uniform, his medals, you know, the, the, the whole, all of that. I mean, I have, you know, uh, I still have his, I still have those medals. There's, there's pride in it. And, and, um, and, and again, I think that has, it goes, it, that also has to do with how my pencils are at night. Yeah. There's yeah. pride. There's pride here. Look, can I just ask you? I but, mean, but, excuse me. One second. No, but, not, yeah. but, but not blindness. Right. A very, right. A very awareness. Right. When, you know, standing, standing in the unknown soldiers in, in, you know, in the national cemetery, you know, at Punchbowl, right? right. The, the, the realization, right. the understanding of what of what it means, yeah, the, the sacrifice, yeah, the sacrifice. Yeah. I, what was it like for you to, uh, it, just cause you brought it up when you did go on the, um, on the peace march, did you find like minds there? Did you find, or did you find that there was a bit of speaking a foreign language that you were protesting from a bit of personal knowledge and, and that others were as well, or did you find, Oh, no, wait, I thought we were singing off the same sheet of music, but actually there's, there's things I understand that you may not, even though we're marching together in this. I think at that time I was not, I, I would not, let me think. I would, I would not be able to speak about being raised in the military the way I do now. I, I, I was still, I had, I probably, was still a dependent. I, I still had my ID card, I believe. Mm. Oh wow! Right, probably, wow. probably, or had just not been issued my ID card. So to talk like this, I I, I yeah. was yeah. not able. Right, got you, got you, um, because it wasn't too many years before that my father had retired. So I was, you know, I mean, we were still going to the the commissary. You know, I would uh, go, still go to the PX. You know, still go to the, you know, the whole the whole thing. Um, But but at that time, from what I remember, we were united in in what we were marching for. Got you. Got you. That makes sense. Yeah, and then also at that time, you know, it was like the seventies. So. Um, I mean, during that time, I was going and seeing Led Zeppelin, and you know, in Los Angeles, I was going and seeing you know, the, you know, Jimi Hendrix, and yeah. and yeah. right, you know, BB King a thousand times, and mm. um, you know, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service. <laughs> so it was wow. like, yeah. yeah, So I was, you know, that the culture I was, I was Im- immersed in in that in that culture of of Got rock you. and roll, for example. It, and the, which to me reflects it's for me it, it's um if i hear you know like buffalo springfield or i hear this or you know creed's yeah. clearwater i'm i'm taken back to that sure. time sure 
so to me, I, there's, do you understand what I'm trying to say here? Um, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I, it, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't mean to keep going back to this, but I, I just have to ask then with your first husband, <laughs> what did that mean for your appreciation or depreciation of the military? Did it change your mindset? Did it even reflect on the military? Was it, did you just only associate it with him? Um, did it have anything to do? Yeah, I guess with, with, I, I'm just wondering how much of a deviation he was from what you had known of the Navy growing up in that world. Wow. You ask, you ask profound questions, Chris. You, you go for the jugular. When I'm writing, I go for the jugular. You go for the jugular in your <laughs> questions. Oh, my God. Well, you're right no. there. You're too interesting. <laughs> it's your fault. But, but um, um, okay, in all honesty... Mm, proud. Again, at that time, I I would not be able to answer this question, but as you were talking, it's like, um, okay, so he would put on his, he would put on his army boots, put on his little, his short brown shorts, wife beater, I hate that term, but his t-shirt, and run on the sand, soft sand, from the pier, Imperial Beach, up to Coronado, and back again, right? Yeah. Proud. Who does that? Yeah. And at that, you know, before I met him, I was dancing and stuff. I would run from the Imperial Beach Pier down to the sloughs on the hard sound, back, go swimming, then go to ballet class. Who does that? Right. A twenty-year-old, right? right? So, so um, I was always proud of that. Um, oh my goodness, his. Wow. Um, it's interesting how we can be proud and shameful at the same mm. time. Right? Mm. Yeah. But I, oh, but this is, oh my goodness, Chris. No wonder I can sit around a table with veterans and write and listen to stories and tell my story because of this common denominator of living with shame and pride. And living in a clandestine world, right, doing things that, oh, my God, you don't talk about at the table. You don't talk about these things at a dinner table. But going back of um, because of his UDT, because of what he did, the clandestine, I I mean, he he didn't talk about what he did as, you know, in, in, in the service, but also on a side note, when we were married, he was still in the reserves. So, mm-hmm. and we were dating. So he would go off once a, once a month to, you know, to the reserves mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And, and I was proud. Um, I was proud of this. And then because of his underwater demolition experiences, and again, his, his relationship to the ocean was extraordinary. And I will say our relationship, because I have, I was born on an island. <laughs> I was, you know, I, one of my, I, I was held by my father in the, going into the ocean. Uh, so I was always, I lived near the ocean. The ocean is part of my life, I, my part of my mm-hmm. identity. So mm-hmm. our relationship was the best part, was the ocean. It was the ocean. Wow. Wow. But his, but his, what he learned in the Navy, 
informed him, enabled him to have a very successful clandestine operation that was based on the ocean. And because, I mean, he was, uh, yes, and there's, there was, there's, I, it's in my body. <laughs> oh my God. There's pride. And yet, holy shit, what the huh. was, was I doing? Yeah. What was I doing? What was I thinking? Yeah. Again, but then you said in that heightened state of, of adrenalized state, you don't, you don't think about the moral issues because I don't know if I, I don't know if I said this, but I will in that state, you can again, only think of survival. What do I, what do I need to do now in order to survive this? So yeah. I, in order to survive this. And so again, as I'm talking, yes, my experiences are, are, different than what you experience in the military and yet there's common denominators yeah it, it, and and yeah. does that and my question then is oh when i tell when i am courageous enough or foolish enough <laughs> hmm. to tell to tell that was a judgment to tell my story does that then create a bond a bridge of trust between us? Of course. Of course. I mean, if for no other reason than just raw human psychology, right? That's the essence of a con man. Confidence man is, is not a con man because he cons you. It's because he gives you his confidence, not because you give him yours. Once you open, once he opens himself up as a con and, and gives you his confidence, it enables the other person to let down their guard. And that's when they take advantage. So, and I think that's a play on natural human psychology that when you ante up significant emotional events and, and, and insight, a personal insight, it, it lowers people's guards. It does make them willing to meet your ante and to go, Oh, well, Hey, you were honest with me. Let me be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I think absolutely. And I, and I think, I think that I, I don't see how that could not, have played a major role in returning soldiers speak and some of the work you've done with veterans where even if you weren't, I think just that emotional knowledge, um, knowing that there's that emotional availability, I think is something that a veteran would pick up on and feel very comfortable with you. Yes. It's, it's, um, there's a, what, I, what I've learned is um, veterans are very um, generic. Yeah. Um, pretty much you have to earn their trust. I remember when I, yes. first, started, when I first started working, you know, when I was uh, talking, inter- being interviewed with the, the um, recreational therapist at the, at the domiciliary, she said, first thing you do, you have to, de- you have to um, develop their trust. You have to develop mm-hmm. their trust. Mm-hmm. What I've learned is, yes, that's true. But what's even more difficult is to keep their trust. Mm. To keep to keep the trust of a veteran mm-hmm. takes wisdom, compassion, tenacity, a lot of mistakes. I've, I've made a lot of mistakes, but my mistakes it has informed me how you know how how not to make the same mistakes. But where am I going with this? But I learned. Because I can, you can, you can understand. I guard 
<laughs> I guard my story. Um, yeah. I, you know, I've guarded it. It's like, you know, yeah. it's like, right. But, but I think sitting around the table and that's, I haven't sat around the table because of the pandemic, but you know, the, the, you know, you know, what I'm talking about. Sure. What am, what am I trying to say here? Um, it took me, when we tell our story, let's just take a, into, let's just say sitting around a table at a writing workshop, right? When we tell our story, our real, our, our deepest story, our deepest story, and we, we write it and we read it and others listen, when they truly listen and they then, I just had chills, and they accept, I'm talking about myself, when I wrote my story, when I write my story, and they, but the veterans hear it and they accept me, that, that changes me in a way of, I, I can be, I can be who I am. I've told my deepest, darkest secrets and I'm not shunned. I'm accepted. I just had chills. I'm accepted. They still love me. They still like me. They still accept who I am. Actually, even more so. When, when I was writing a midnight watch, um, I wrote, I, I, I took it in. Okay. I was over at the wellness works, um, at, at a, a writing workshop. It began, it was there for like five years. And I remember Adam, who was, um, uh, 13, 14 years in the army and also, you know, double, double toured Iraq intelligence. I remember I read it. And then when he said, um, something about how, how I brought the watch back, there was, it began you know, my mm-hmm. father on, on the ship, you know, watch. And then I end, and then I bring it back with how that was the most important when, when in the hospital, how it was the most important watch of his life. Adam picked that up and he pointed that out. And he said, when you, when you and, and just coming back with that watch, when he said that, I, 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 I felt the, not the gravity, but the, the, um, the profoundness, the, the wonder, yeah. the beauty of it, mm-hmm. the beauty of it. So what, what am I saying here that sitting around the table, sharing our stories, even the, you know, the whatever, and being accepted and heard, right? When we're, yeah. when we're heard, when we're witnessed, um, what does that do to our, our, our interior lives? Absolutely. You know, so did that at all answer your question? Uh, absolutely does, of course. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, um, it's, uh, yes, it did answer my question. It makes me, um, I'm going to th- throw this out and tell me if I'm off base when I say this. Is that why you have gravitated so strongly towards plays? because it's collaborative, because you get to involve other people and there's a sharing, there's an emotional connection that's kind of made among people? Or was there another reason that you picked plays as the medium that you've, at least to my knowledge, been most prolific? Um, There's a, a few answers to the question. One is, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't. I don't know. The other. I don't know. The other is um, there. There's a. There's a. The, the chance that I will see the play actually done. Right. Uh, I, I, I was doing screenplays and all that. The, the chance of having a screenplay. No, forget it. Right. So so that. But I think I think it goes back to my love of theater, my love of theater. Yeah. I've returned. Okay. Um, mind you, I, I, you know, my mother and oldest sister performed the hula when I was a little girl. I was a tap dancer when I was like four and five. I was in junior theater. I was a dancer choreographer. I, I performed, you know, you know, cl- you know, I performed. And then after I had, after I stopped dancing, I had to stop dancing, which was a, another thing, um, and began writing, you know, I, so I wrote and I wrote and I wrote, I developed my craft and then somehow, oh, oh, I wonder Oh, this is interesting. I never made the connection. When I began working with veterans, then at the Dom, I, I did a, um, an evening of uh, prose and poetry. So I, you know, reading of a reading with veterans, mm, mm-hmm. right? I was back in kind of in the theater. We did it beyond mm. Baroque. So then, you know, I did this annual event. So, but what am I trying to say here? I think my love of theater. My love of, of theater, the power of theater, and then I'm I'm really good with dialogue. So so, so and somehow I I don't know why I began writing plays again, but I did. No, actually, I never really wrote plays. What am I thinking? Well, maybe when I was a kid. I'm rambling, but love of theater, and then just there's something. And it does go to the collaborative art, mm. but sitting, but sitting in a theater, and watching a play—oh my goodness! Right, the magic of yeah. theater. In the yeah. theater, one can really the create the magic, create the magic, right? So yes, that collaborative of the magic. But I, um, I will say that I. Um, I'm a member of uh, Ensemble Studio Theater Los Angeles, and they had a one-act play festival, so the uh, calls went out for directors. Oh, let's try directing. That should be easy. <laughs> right? uh, oh, I'll direct. That should be easy, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I, d- I still don't know. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> I, I did. I directed a, I directed a one-act. Um, I learned so much. But what way, what better way? Because we had yeah. no prop master, no this, none of that. And we're just coming back from the pandemic, right? So I... I had to make some props and I had to do this and I did pretty much everything. So what better way to learn how the theater works? Um, but I had to rig, um, I had to rig something. And so I couldn't sit out in the audience as the director and watch. I had to be backstage in order to rig and unrig, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. But, but I tell you. Um, there was a couple of times when I, when I had little time, I went out in the audience, right? And all the other directors were out, out there, all the playwrights, all this. Yeah. You know where I liked it the most? Backstage. Mm. I, I liked backstage. And this is, I liked backstage. And I, and I liked, I liked the quiet. I liked the focus. Mm. 
Because I would mm-hmm. go back, you know, the mm-hmm. actors would be back, you know, in the dress, you know, preparing. <laughs> it was like, you know, boy oh, actors, right? Oh, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they're another animal, man. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did some acting before, but I'm not an actor. It's like, but the focus and all of this. And I go, wow, I really like it back here. I like, <laughs> I like it back here, you know? So that was an interesting thing for me. So I guess, I guess in, 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 in answer, yes, it is the collaboration, you know, and being, it's very interesting. Um, I love, I loved being backstage with the, again, I'm going to repeat myself, the focus, the quiet, the anticipation, the yeah, anticipation, the, the possibilities that were going to happen. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I also love probably even more. I love sitting in the audience, watching my work unfold. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love sitting there because I've done all this work, sitting at my desk, creating these characters, all of this other stuff. Yes, it is collaboration. Um, All this other stuff. When I, when uh, Tammy, there was a reading. So uh, I tried to get a couple of directors. They were not available. So I said, well, I'll, I'll direct. It was just a reading, just a reading. So I'll direct it. Well, working with actors, I, my goodness, I mm. love working with actors. Sure. Because they ask sure. very interesting questions. They make me think. Yeah. You know, yeah. they make me think. And so that is the collaboration. You're right. The, working closely, a playwright working, at, at a playwright director working with actors. Wow. Yeah. You know, I yeah. could live I could live in that world, you know, yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then as a director working um with uh, on another person's play, it's a whole different ball game. It's it's Oh yeah. I yeah. had no idea how different it would be. But again, working with the actors, you know, being being in that that process that to me is just the magical world of of wonder and creativity and exploration and what actors bring, you know, it's like whoa, yeah, you know, yeah. and what and then what we bring to them. So yeah, it is it is collaboration. But I I, I will I want to say this. But when you said about collaboration, it was like oh wait a minute, I'm an introvert. I like to be. <laughs> I, wait a minute, no collaboration. Yeah. That scares yeah. me. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it is the collaboration. Well, it's also it's also the the fun part of collaboration because it's born from the introvert's mind into an extrovert environment, and that's kind of cool. There's a little bit of control in that. There's a little bit of a uh, play in that. It's building the structure of a uh, uh, it's building the sandbox that everybody's going to frolic in, and there's yes. there's sort of a, a fun with that. Yeah, and also um, with that about collaboration, I wrote um actually I think this is probably what began my my playwriting um, endeavor. Um, I had heard, a, again, my husband, my, this best husband, um, uh, was, it was a key grip. It, is, he's transitioning. Anyway, that's another, another <laughs> story. Um, he heard on set years ago about, um, I think, a nephew of a nephew or what uh, something was in Afghanistan, and they were um, uh, out on the outpost, and... Um, they, uh, 
they saw a Taliban or what they, they saw, you know, some people, um, is it okay if I swear on this? Is it yeah, okay if of I, course. Uh, sure. uh, yeah. uh, fucking goats, literally fucking goats. And then they got orders to, um, light up them, the, the humans. Um, so I thought, whoa, this is a very interesting story. And I wrote, I wrote a, a short story and then I turned it into a play. So, um, I call it Spingar and at EST it was, um, we went through the process of development and it got a staged reading. So you have these two guys, uh, Popeye, no, no, Trigger Happy and, and Radio Man, right? Um, up on, up on this edge, right? Right. This whole thing. And, um, the director, he got, he got the play. We were talking, you know, we were talking, he, he understood it. He got it. Right. So I walk in, I walk into the, uh, into the theater for the, our first rehearsal and he had, okay, mind you, this is a tiny, tiny black box. And all we have for our set piece are the boxes, right? Uh -huh. So he had, he had assembled, he had made, he put these boxes in a circle and he was going to have the, the two characters inside over the boxes, like with rifle. And I went, whoa, look at this. Look what he has done. I would never think of doing this. <laughs> I was, I went, whoa. Right? Yeah. I would never have yeah. thought of putting, of using these boxes to create this mountainside. Hmm. Um, so going back to the collaboration, I went, whoa, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, and then how, how he lit it and where, in, and, and having, um, how, how to, how to create the atmosphere and, and when radio man goes, you know, onto the radio, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know why I was saying that, but somehow, the wonder of or um, admiration for a director's mind taking taking a, a play and transforming it into something other more yeah. than than what the playwright um actually could think of. I, I, I would never have thought of that. What percentage of your writing is military themed or has some touches on the military at all versus that the stuff that doesn't for a long time years that's all i wrote really yeah that's all wow. i wrote yeah yeah wow pretty much um uh, maybe occasionally something in between um i have a whole series of um of poems and short shorts of Wounded soldiers. I have a whole. I have a whole that, that for years. That's what I wrote. Um, uh, so Spengar, then Foot Soldier. Foot Soldier came. Uh, Popeye and Will appeared. They just appeared, and I think I began writing Foot Soldier when I was in Hawaii, and, and I, um, and it was a short story. I wrote a short story. And then it, I said, no, this has to be a play. Um, so Foot Soldiers, I've been writing, working on Foot Soldier. It came years ago, and it's still not finished. Um, uh, then, there, yeah, again, there was a time of when that's all I wrote. And yeah. I go, it goes back to trying to process what I see happening in the world, yeah. But also going back to 
uh, it really is that journey of what it means to be raised in the military, what it means yeah. to be yeah. from my, my perspective. And it's odd, Chris, it's odd, but how I learned writing about, but is it odd? Writing about veterans, writing about war, writing about this, writing about, you know, separation, writing about the wounds of, of the soul. Uh, and then, you know, Doris and James appeared and writing about yeah. the wounds of the soul. Yeah. Um, I guess, wow, I guess, I guess the complex is more in me than I could have ever imagined. Uh, yeah, yeah. How long do you write every day? How do you know when to stop writing? Huh. Um, again, that depends on if uh, how long I write. Oh, sometimes, okay, that depends okay. on life gets in the way. I have a day job. Um, um, sometimes I, I write probably an hour or so when I get up, after I take my dog out, blah, blah, I'll write for about an hour. And then, um, then I have to go, you know, do my more, my Buddhist practice, you know, or that, that kind of stuff, do other things. I come back. If, if I have a deadline, um, again, it varies and it should be, I should have a much more disciplined answer than this, but, um, I don't. I try to write at least an hour, if not more. Um, and if I have a deadline, like last week, I, I was in this playwriting workshop. My pages were up. Oh, I'll write all day. <laughs> it's like, you yeah. know, I'll write yeah. five, six hours, you know, five, yeah. six hours. And that's when a deadline is happening. Um, but I actually, I actually like those days because I can say, I'm writing. Don't you know? It's like right, right? Because people people don't understand. That's they right. don't. They don't understand that it's work. Yeah, yeah. It's a job. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so pretty much, um, and then, uh, and then also, if I am doing something else, I've learned that if I hear a scene, if I hear dialogue, if I hear something or, or something comes in, um, it's a good thing. We're not, we're not in the Salem witch trials. Cause I would, you know, <laughs> right. Um, I will, I will stop and I will come and I'll, I'll write. Okay. Um, there'll be times of, this is my process. If I'm laying down and that, that the, um, solution comes, mm -hmm. I'm up. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I'll write knock wow. on wood. Wow. I'll knock on wood. So you don't um, take notes, notes to self that you'll read in the morning. you you get up and you actually try to get it properly down because if I don't, I lose it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and now, um, most of the time I'm lazy and I go, Oh, I'll remember. No, you don't remember. And then I'll write and I go, God darn it. Why didn't I write that down? What was that again? So, um, no, did that answer okay. your question? Yeah, that does. That does. We're, uh, you've been wildly generous with time, so I don't want to hold you up much more, but I, I, let me ask, I do want to ask this though. What is, what turns you on now? What is your inspiration? What's the well you go to, to get fuel? 
Is it still the pictures? Will it always be the pictures? Is it the experiences going and working with veterans? Are those wells that just never run out? Or is there other stuff that sometimes you're like, okay, I've been, I've been working in this mine for a while. I, I, I need something else just to jostle me, just to get me um, where I want to be creatively today. Is there any of that? Or are these so deep in you now that you can just work in those minds and, and not worry about your creativity, your inspiration, any of that? Hmm. My initial thought were the characters. Mm. And the characters and also what I need to say. What what mm. what what is what is hmm again I work in images. No no it's not that I work in images. Let me back images appear or a character appears. So when a character appears so so magnificently Mm. (laughs) when when a magnificent character if i may this is not ego i'm not speaking from ego here and how sad i have to say that but it's like (laughs) right um when how do i say this this is again another very provocative (laughs) probing question when 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 someone like Will appears in Popeye from Foot Soldier, I love them. I love mm. truly, mm. deeply, passionately love, care for Popeye and Will. I love them so deeply, right? So I don't, and I, 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 I'm not, I don't. So because of my deep connection, my deep, profound love, it is a love. Yeah. I, I love, I love yeah. my characters. I love Doris and James. I, yeah. I love them. How could I not want to be in their <laughs> world? How could I not want to be in their world? I love the world of where, where Doris lives. It, I find it... So I have chills. I'm curious about that world. I'm, I, I, do, I don't know if this is answering your question. It is. It is. Absolutely. I yearn. I yearn to sit in an audience, to sit in a theater and watch James, I have chills, entering, wrapped mm. in that bandage, right? Searching, searching. And she's there waiting for him, Right? And the dance, and the dance, and listening to her sing to him, right? And him hearing the river? Yeah, yeah. You know, I yearn to sit and watch that magic unfold. And I have, because, again, the... Is it escapism to want to yearn to be Mm. in that world or is it my way of becoming whole? Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, because I, I, because at the same time, when someone else, I, I might cry with this, when someone else is sitting in the audience who, let's just say, 
the 15 dead souls, what is the 15 dead? What does that mean? What, what, what is right? Well, so when someone else is sitting in the audience who understands what that 15 is, mm. what will happen to that person? What process? What will they be able to come home? Yeah. Can they come home? Can they go to the river and forgive yeah. and become, you, you understand what I'm saying? I, so, I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So. But that's a deep well of inspiration. I mean, because it's so generated from within your, 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 your natural empathy and your, as you say, your love of the characters. I mean, it's, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, I get it. I get, I get how you don't run out and I get where that it's interesting. And I, I, you know, I remember in Savage Wonder when we brought you up on stage to talk to uh, people and say, Hey, she won, she won the playwriting competition. And you were like, Hey, and Doris and James did this and all that. And I remember going, yeah, because word choice always fascinates me. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. She went right to the characters. Um, and, uh, and that's explained so much now. These are just people that are, that are with you and that you're seeing and that you're loving and that you're, you know, bringing to life in front of us. And that is why they are so three-dimensional. You can't phone that in. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I found it interesting too, how I went to Doris and James and go, whoa, what, you know, I, I found it also interesting mm. too, but you said how I bring them to life. They bring me to life. Well, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, um, uh, yeah, they, they, they do, they, um, wow. What, how can I say this? Um, no wonder, no wonder I, I fight cause it is a battle to, to, to do the work. It, it, it is, it is a fight. It yeah. is a fight to do the work, right? No wonder yeah. I do. And, um, and actually, um, how, I don't know if lucky, lucky is not there. I don't know if luck is, has anything, but how, um, what rich, mm. I, I'm going to say it, how rich my life is to have these characters. Yeah. And, and where, yeah. where, and I, I, you know, again, the channel, where do they come from? I, there is so much a, a part of me of of the universal. Yeah, they're the they're universal, you know. Because um, one one of the places where James came from was, and also uh, years ago. Do you have a couple more minutes? I have a couple. Oh, anyway, so that that's yeah. another. So so how how we how we how we bring the warriors home? How we welcome the warriors home? What we do when would the warriors come home? In our culture, we do this. We say no. It's like you know, you're over there, we're over here, blah blah blah. But in indigenous cultures and in the in the Greek, mm -hmm. the Greek culture, they they uh, healed, made love, they 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 listened to the warriors. So I, I'm so it's really important that. That I think it's important to tell, you know, to write stories about this, and and anyway, so it, no, 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 you're not, and and it is important, and it's funny, yeah, I um, I agree, I th yeah, I think there's, I think it's easy for people, if like for anything, it's easy for people from a distance to welcome people home, and I certainly feel, I I could not feel less in common with the Vietnam era. 
um, you know, for the soldiers returning then. I could not feel like, I know my experience was radically 180 degrees different than theirs was. Um, and I feel like that is easy. It's easy to welcome strangers home because we represent, we're, and I'm not saying this in any sort of, oh, poor us or anything, or poor veterans or anything like that. I, I just think like anybody you don't personally know, there's going to be a degree of tokenism. There's going to be a degree of avatar. You're an avatar for an ideal or for an entity or what have you. And that's fine. I mean, that I don't expect people to, you can't know everyone in the country personally. So that's okay. That, that happens. I think there, there is a shift um, when it does get to the people that you know. And I think that's where it's hard for people to tell stories um, and to want to hear stories. Uh, so, and, and again, this is anecdotal, not empirical. Um, but I think uh, people are comfortable with combat, loss, grief, those general subjects in the abstract. Mm-hmm. It's what, what do they look like up close at home? And then having the tools to be able to tell those intimately amongst people that know you and, and can see the nuanced differences before and after and what have you. I think that's where, you know, there's, there's work to be done. I think sometimes there's, at least in my experience, there's been a lot of emphasis that I keep hearing from people on trying to change the culture and the culture needs to be more. I, I think the culture is fine as far as welcoming soldiers back, but I think it's the, I think it's the intimacy. Uh, it's the intimate connections those very personal things where it's hard for people to know how to process um, that and how to relate. And it's a, it's a micro issue, not a macro issue. Yes. I don't know. That's my, my two yeah. cents. Yeah. And also in answer to your question about writing or whatever, um, uh, I write also to process what I hear, what yes. I see, what I experience. I process it to understand, to come to a deeper understanding of myself and then to help, hopefully help others un- understand Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Because story, story is power and we, and, and we need story. We've always needed story, but to me now more than ever, what's what the craziness that we're, what we're experiencing in the world right now. Well, and it's also, but it's also for understanding, uh, you know, that, that the, the rush to demonize the rush to, to other, you know, um, there's a reason why story exists and it's a natural unfoldment of people's lives. And so therefore, yeah, it, um, it doesn't mean I, you know, like I talked about on the show before, but you know, I think there's a big difference between tolerance and endorsement. You know, the point of tolerance is to be around people you don't agree with. There's no nobility in only tolerating people you agree with. That's not tolerance. That's just, you know, putting the blinders on and keeping your head down. But the point of tolerance is to be around people that you don't agree with and tolerate it, hopefully have some understanding, that doesn't equal endorsement. And I think a lot of people do have confusion about tolerance and endorsement, where they think mm-hmm. tolerance is endorsing, and it's not. It's tolerating. It's going, yeah, I don't agree with you, but yeah, I don't hate you. You're not the devil. Um, but I, and I, I'm happy to hear what you have to say and all that, and I can tolerate it. Um, and I, think there, I, th- I do think there's something uh, that, in that. I, I, two things. is Because when we, when we hear another person's story, when it's authentic, when when it's a true story, when it's authentic, not not a bunch of yeah, BS, yeah, yeah. right? We, there's a commonality because oh, I understand yes. this person, yes. I can relate, even though I didn't experience what you did. I have my own, and yes. so there's 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 a creates humanity, the good part right. of humanity, right. Right? right? And it's like, for example, I'm sure that you 
have a I don't know what the a better understanding of who I am um, from my stories, what I've what I've talked. About. You have a clear picture, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yes. Right. Well, oh, well, a clearer picture than I did. You mean than I did have, or than yeah. you have? Oh, yeah, certainly than I did have, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. and and so you know, and and it's and so when I hear your story at another time, when I hear your story, then because I do want to hear your story, then I go, oh. Again, there, there, there's the bridge, for yeah. lack of a better yes. word. Yes, a, a bridge is built. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, 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 no, a hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. Holy shit, you got to come back. Um, you know, we're, we're, I'm sure this will not be the last time we talk. Either I on hope air, not. Definitely not. Definitely not off air, but even on air, uh, I would love to. There's so much more um, that we have to. I, I'd love to talk to you about. This is a blast, Lilani. Let's do this it again, was. okay? Yeah, yeah. You're not fair. You asked too good of a questions, Chris. <laughs> You're not fair. Well, to be continued. <laughs> it's your fault. Don't be so interesting next time. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was my honor. Truly. I really mean that. It was my honor. Thank you very much for your time and your questions. That was the savage wonder of Lilani Squire. Was that fun for you guys? That was a blast for me. I, um, I really love Lilani. She is such an awesome person. Um, her vulnerability, her transparency, her honesty. Um, I, I <clears throat> she's very sweet to compliment me on my questions, but you know, I ask her before the episode, is there anything you don't want me to ask about? <laughs> to her credit and to her courage, she said, no, ask away. I'm ready to be honest. It's like, all right, awesome. Um, you don't have to be if you don't want to be, uh, but man, was that interesting. Um, and I just want to go on record as saying I love that with such an interesting life that would beg an autobiography, she has not done that. I love that instead she has allowed her life experiences to infiltrate fictional writing. Um, I think that has deepened her fiction. It makes it fills in the, the gaps for me in her writing and makes me understand where these characters, where their depth, where their resonance, where the subject matter, um, you know, deepens and broadens. And uh, it just, it makes sense. It's like, yeah, you're feathering these experiences that you've had in your own life. And even if it doesn't have anything directly to do with the piece of fiction you're writing, it's, it's going to deepen. It's going to, it's going to impact the piece of fiction she's working on in some way, shape or form. And that's just rich. That just leaves you with rich writing, especially when she's as diligent on writing as she is. Uh, the fact that she does not miss a day, that she is there, nose to the grindstone, working it constantly to mine and hone her ability to, yeah, to mine, to source uh, her emotions and her, her um, inspiration right onto the page uh, really gives you that. Yeah, you can just tell that, that's, that you're, you're looking and reading an exceptional talent um, with a deep well, a deep reservoir of emotion and experience. Anyway, I, I loved it. I can't wait for the next time we talk, um, both either off air or on, um, but I look forward to it all. Okay, <clears throat> what else should you guys know? Um, if you want to know more about Veterans Repertory Theater, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P, Vetrep.org. That is your one-stop shop for any and everything 
related to Veterans Repertory Theater. We have, um, I don't know if I've laid this out for you guys before, but we have essentially, I guess we would group it as four major lines of effort that we have. We have several persistent lines of effort, like this podcast, our literary blog, which also doubles as our mailing list. So if you want to get on that, go to thevetrep.org, go to our Now Playing tab. You can scroll down. You can see all of our lines of effort at the Now Playing tab, but you can certainly see the literary blog and sign up to get that delivered right to your inbox every day. A little piece of veteran writing accompanied by uh, shameless plugs for stuff we want you guys to know about. So those, that's our persistent lines of effort. Um, we also, if you're in the greater New York area, specifically Cornwall, New York, or the Hudson Valley, uh, we do have our parlor in Cornwall that we have comedies pretty much every Saturday night. It's a pay-what-you-can ticket. Uh, it is a whopping 16-seat house. It is intimate. It looks like you're in Sherlock Holmes' den. It is awesome. It makes no sense, but we have a blast doing it. Um, and that's just a great way of us having fun every single Saturday, pretty much from April to December. So if you're in the area, come on by. Book tickets in advance because we're always sold out. But book tickets, we'd love to see you um, at the parlor for any of our live shows our other lines of effort, of course, are, is our play production, which starts uh, with the playwriting competitions and works its way through play development into actual fully mounted play production. We have yet to do that. Bear in mind, we're only, whatever we are, 12 months, 14 months old. So uh, we're just getting going. But we have some really promising plays that I can't wait for you guys to see when they're ready to be seen. And that obviously is a main line of effort for us. And then, of course, we have the Savage Wonder Festival, which is um, our chance to celebrate veterans in all sorts of artistic media, including theater, but also dance, music, poetry, uh, visual art. And we uh, love the opportunity to do that. And that is um, obviously a major line of effort for us. So all those lines of effort you can keep tabs on, find out more about by going to vetrep.org, go to our Now Playing tab. And you can learn any and everything you want to learn about what we do at VetRep. Other than that, if you're on iTunes, please go ahead and give us a five-star review. That would just mean a lot to us. Um, We always appreciate great feedback. You can find us on Instagram at VetRepTheater, on Facebook at Veterans Repertory Theater. I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. It's R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, so at Veterans Repertory Theater if you're on Facebook. Advet Rep Theater on Instagram. Um, so always feel free to reach out to us on social media. We do our damnedest to stay involved on social media. It is the bane of my life, but uh, there are too many cool people out there on social that I do try to make a point of staying on social as much as I sometimes would like not to. Anyway, um, other than that, reach out. We'd love to hear from you guys. I think that's all the plugging I have to do for now. I want to thank our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.